I thought you were dead. Sun out of your eyes and be yourself. I heard you were dead. She's dead, wrapped in plastic. That man's dead back then. It was worse than dead. He must be dead. Is this a dead man, Doctor? We've been doing these really bad cold opens, too. I can't wait. This is the flavor. This is it. This is the cold open. Yeah. Just doing it. It's fucking chilly. It's really quite awful what we've been doing. Yo, but sometimes shows have to start when you hit play and shit. Like, it's cool. (laughs) That is is typically how they start. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Right. So uh, the catchphrase is... uh, Let's start the show. Let's start the show. Welcome to Roast Mortem. You belong here. My name is Tom. It's not let's start the show. It's we put the A in in his anal in history. I'm Travis. <laughs> I'm Connor. <laughs> and tonight we have a special guest. Colin, introduce yourself because God damn it, I want to hear you talk. All right. Well, my name is Colin. I'm the host of Cauldron, a, his, a military history podcast. Um, and I am... I feel honored to be back for my second tour of duty on the Roast Mortem podcast. This is very exciting to be back with the boys chatting a little bit of history. So uh, thank you, gentlemen, for inviting me, and uh, I'm excited to to get going, start talking some Douglas, Sir Douglas Haig, Field mm-hmm. Marshal Douglas Haig. I think he was an earl by the end, so I, yeah. I don't know what that, how you address an earl, but we'll just call him... Doug. We've been calling him Dougie. Senor. Haig. Senor Doug. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Senor Doug. Yeah. All the above work. No, we're so we're so happy to have you back on. You actually kind of know you actually know what you're talking about with history, but also again, we just want to hear your voice more. And if you (laughs) if you want to hear sexual Colin's voice, go check out uh check out my OnlyFans. Yeah. Uh, it's not just feet. Okay. Um, well, we start the show with uh, the old how was your week. Colin, how was your week so far? How's it going? Week's been fine, you know, slinging haddock and lobsters up here on the coast of Maine and just uh, being doing fishmonger things and working on, I am slowly and steadily giving birth to an episode on the Battle of Conigratz or Sadova. And uh, it's been painful and painstaking but i'm hoping i'll have a new episode up by the end of the week maybe early next week uh it's been a little bit of uh a little while since the last episode came out of my show but um conigrats and sadova if you guys are interested or know anything about it it is a sea change moment in not just european history but military history and it kind of ties into what we're going to talk about today because I am of the opinion that if the Battle of Konigratz goes the other way and the Austrians win and you have a Austrian-led Germany, you probably don't have World War I. And then we wouldn't be talking about Sir Douglas Haig. Um, so it kind of uh, it goes full circle and it just shows you that the roots of a lot of what we talk about, a lot of the stuff that we look at in history – uh, the the roots go deep, man. They are they are deep and they are hard to unravel. 
the the rise of Germany as the state that we know of it in 1914, the German Empire, it really can be traced back to July 3rd, 1866 in uh, southern Bavaria. So, uh, uh, yeah, so that's that's where I'm at. That's my. Do week. you want to do our show all the time? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to log off, guys. Yeah. <laughs> but, but I, you know, quality takes time. Yeah. What does that say about us? I don't know. It's a lot. (laughs) Well, Well, I I think you can be quick and fast. You know, uh, as long as everybody's leaving satisfied and smiling, it doesn't matter how long it takes, right? That's what my wife tells me. (laughs) Uh, Travis, you had, uh, do you want to talk about your day? Oh. My day. I just yeah, got a jury duty, Portland jury duty, involved stealing scrap metal, uh, <laughs> theft in the second degree, an old man who <laughs> worked on metal since he was in junior high and thought all of his rusty shit was really expensive, and just really obnoxious jurors that couldn't figure out uh, or was like, oh, it wasn't clear whether the 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 item that was on this man's property if the person that took it knew it belonged to someone <laughs> that's awesome yeah. portland jury duty sounds like a uh some kind of grind band is private drum. property real <laughs> it's, it's, it's actually a noise core band yeah but like isn't property a figment of our imagination isn't that like a societal structure in and of itself man to that and... region of the world absolutely exactly. <laughs> no idea the the court was on the eighth floor and i was looking at my car that was in the parking garage across the like block the entire day i was like i could just run there right now <laughs> i just i just imagine you like the uh that 70s commercial about pollution with the native american with one tear rolling down his cheek yeah. travis looking out the window at his car one <laughs> one giant tear rolling down a cheek yeah. i guess uh, it must have been hard being able to look down and see people smoking cigarettes for you Oh, yeah, dude. I mean, I was every time they're like, oh, you got five minutes. I'm like, I'm going through security. I don't care. <laughs> See you in 20. Again. You're on forced cigarette. Yeah. Uh, Connor, uh, tell me about uh, your house and all the property that exists in your house. Oh, well, well I don't own anything, so oh, <laughs> don't okay. have to worry about that. And I keep my scrap metal locked in a safe. That way no one can take it. A wise move. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, no, I had a good week. I met up with some friends who I hadn't seen in a few years. Uh, they live in England. I met them when I studied abroad. They came across. It was nice hanging out. And, How'd she uh, look? Huh? How'd she look? Uh, she had gotten engaged. Oh, so me and my wife abroad. were celebrating with her. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I remember now getting that joke. That's the good quality content I come on to roast. Yeah. Yes. yeah. <laughs> Amen. High brow. Yeah. <laughs> That was good. Went out for drinks, had some food. You know, nice, easy day. How about you, Tom? How's your week been? Phenomenal. Good to know. I've had, uh, (laughs) I've spent probably three or four hours this week so far massaging my wife's leg. Mm. Now, she had, uh, she woke up with a uh, a, a knot in her leg. Visible? In her, her, yeah, and it was. I don't know. She just woke up. It was like the weirdest thing. We took her to a, a walk in. They were like, "We have no idea what that is." It felt like a piece of jerky had had just 
taking grasp in there and then sun dried it <laughs> inside her leg. Uh, so she's getting better now. She wasn't able to walk for two days. Jesus. Yeah, it was Whoa. weird. And she's a she does ballet. Yeah. Five times a week. Uh, you would think people would take care of her, th- themselves. No. You know what? She drank too much. She's mm. trying to keep up with Tom. And you know what happens when you keep up with Tom? I know. Your legs happens. get fucked up. Yeah. yeah. I usually wake up uh, in the bathroom. Right. Covered in vomit. <laughs> right. Uh, anyway, that's that's my week because I'm married now and her suffering is my suffering. Uh, boys. That, uh, that's that's standard for marriage, right? That's just kind of yeah. how it goes. It is. It is. And uh, it's cool. You know, it's we all uh, have crosses to bear. <laughs> yes. Uh, I, I want to move on now. I don't want to think about that anymore. Yeah, my cross is a hot cross. Fun. We'll move on to some other crosses to bear. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's Connor, jump back believe- into World War One, dog. And yeah. Hagee. Yeah, what he said. Yeah, we're doing the Dougie, right? We're doing the Dougie. We're doing the Dougie in the mud this time. We had some <laughs> nice weather before. The weather is going to take a little turn. We're, we're, we're very concerned about the wind last episode. Yeah. It's going to be the rain that we're going to be worrying about today. Oh. Uh. So all, oh, those, yeah, were... all those people recovering from winds disease. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, they were crop dusting themselves last time, right? Yeah. They'll keep doing that, uh, but it, it, they'll also be showering one another, I guess. Golden? Yeah. <laughs> 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 uh, uh, a muddy shower. Yeah. Maybe yeah. even worse than a golden one. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> a brown shower is coming. Oh, God. My good. So we left off. Uh, we'd left. We'd left the horrors of the Somme, um, and we'd heard about how Joseph Joffre, the French commander, had left. The uh, Herbert Asquith government had gone out, and David Lloyd George was brought in. And this is all the winter of 1916 and 1917. And the situation in early 1917 for the Allies is bleak. Uh, the Russian Empire is showing signs of collapsing in on itself. Uh, the German U-boat campaign is starting to become uh, unleashed. They're about to unleash the subs fully, and that's taking its toll on British shipping. And with the Russian collapse, the U-boats, Germany is going to be able to bring in huge amounts of men from the eastern uh, front and can overwhelm the west. Uh, there were a few signs of hope, though, for the Allies. The U-boats are just driving the Americans insane, so by April they're going to be joining the war. Um, and also Austria-Hungary, it looks more like uh, not a help to Germany and more of a hindrance by this point. Now, do you think if they came out with like a ride-sharing kind of version of sailboats, they'd call it U-boats? You could just rent <laughs> no, a that'd boat. be uh, that'd be wee boats. Wee boats, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so basically, yeah, things aren't going great. Um, The Allies, as always, had their plans for 1917. They were drawn up in 1916, which meant that uh, Robert Nivelle, who took over for the French, um, was adapting plans created by Haig and Joffre. Oh, so they're talking to each other now. Eh, A little bit. Not really still. (laughs) Yeah, they still don't trust each other. uh, So they communicate a little bit. The politicians on both sides are communicating much more than the military men. Uh, um, you know, it, it's the weirdest thing. I guess I watched too much Monty Python growing up, but I can't imagine 
France actually having a military at all, <laughs> even though I know this is... Even though they have the best like, army in the world, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it's so... It, it is the involvement. It's all of it. Yeah. I, I, I'm, like, imagining, like, the British versus the blue guys, like, or something. <laughs> I don't know. It's It's a very... It's a weird thing going on in my brain. I, know, I, know. I don't think you're alone there. I think it's an interesting, uh, what is that, Mandela effect? You know, the um, when everybody sees it's like the Berenstein Bears, but it's really <laughs> right. the Bernstein yeah. Bears or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> I think that the internet has created this Mandela effect where everybody on the internet and anybody that's grown up in the last 75 years thinks of France as like the shittiest military power of all time. Yeah just happens to be there a lot but right you know the, historically this is <laughs> the, the land of uh charlemagne it's the land of napoleon it's truly it's like for about six seven hundred years it was the only like military power unified military power in europe and at the time that we're dealing with right now even though it's think about it this way like no other country probably other than germany itself could have taken the body blows that france took from 1914 to 1916 1917 yeah and and ben still standing to continue the fight every other country would have collapsed under that kind of a flurry of of uh, uh that just uh, total onslaught yeah, yeah yeah it's a it's an onslaught and for some reason the public schooling teaches you well, you know, they bailed us they out. They surrendered to the Nazis war, and then immediately. They yeah. Giant pussies. <laughs> yeah. they, every single one of them. It's like it's, well, it's a, because you know what? It goes beyond. It's it's we don't understand. It makes no, no sense to us because we've never been conquered. That's one yeah. thing that you see a lot of European historians refer to is like the biggest problem with the United States is that it's never been conquered by another country. It's never been subjected to that. And so France in 1939, 1940, they are so afraid of what we're about to talk about yeah. happening again. Right. And, and specifically Verdun and Passchendaele is just so deeply, deeply uh, uh, written in their minds and, and burned there that they are willing to uh, castrate themselves on the on the geopolitical level, uh, put themselves down in, in for all of history as cowards, because in their minds it's better than ever getting back to the yeah. point where they're in the the position where they were in nineteen. Yeah, sending another two yeah. million young Frenchmen to their death. It's like, yeah. maybe it's not worth it. Maybe maybe that's the actual and, and, good thing. And are they wrong? <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. I, I mean, say there there isn't a Holocaust. Say that there's not a Germany uh, killing, you know, all the people that they, they were putting off into camps. I don't know if, if France would be wrong um i you know i don't know it's really beyond me i i i i i've always done my best with the show to like look at events like i make a lot of jokes they're fucking jokes like i <laughs> i don't know what's going on in these people's heads like that is a hell of a decision yeah i don't know what the outcome would be otherwise so you you know the best we could do is kind of pay attention mm -hmm. look, look i don't mean to sound like a brainy boy but i always knew that the french were a warrior class from an early age because they eat land clams 
<laughs> and they you. garlic. You. Oh. Dude, that is how you know a warrior. That snacks on the go. You just pick them up off the ground. Throw them in a little pot and you're ready. Right. Oh, God. All right, back to the story. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the initial plans in 1917 is... They're going to do what they did in 1916 and attack across the Somme. They're going to go right back to the well because it worked so well the last time. This gets changed uh, once Novell takes over, though. He shifts the offensive further south. Uh, he also reduces the BEF contribution. Um, and also, he kept selling his plan that, look, all the horrific nature of these offensives is that they just drag on forever. You know, like the Somme had its awful first day, and instead of ending it after that, it continued for another four months. So his plan was like, look, in 48 hours, we will have a decision of we're going to continue the advance because we're going to have the breakthrough finally, or we'll call it off because it's not working. And that's what he said. He's like, we'll call it off if it's not working, but I know it's going to work. So we'll see how that goes. <laughs> how are the pigeons feeling today, boys? Because they're going to be using their wings. When how we fast you feel in 48 flying. hours. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Uh, so as this was going on, all the Allied political machinations are continuing behind the scenes. At a conference in February of 1917, Haig and the BEF are placed under the command of Nivelle and the French military. Now, this infuriated Haig, and rightfully so. It removed any sort of independence from the BEF. Um, it also would mean he's answering to a French commander. We'll see in World War II how having a supreme allied commander is actually a good thing, and eventually the allies in World War I will figure that out, but this wasn't even that. This was basically like turning the BEF into just a French, another, like the French Sixth Army now. So Haig didn't like that at all. Now, I forgot if we mentioned this in the other episodes, but is he, does he like the French, or is he one of the typical Englishmen? They're like, fucking bobs, well, in it. He speaks French, so yeah. I think he has like a slight, admiration for them but also in all my reading i think he just hates all foreigners yeah, yeah so right. he's he's yeah. an interesting cat in that he he can work well with the french yeah and as we see like uh, you just touched on it connor he, they eventually do go with a, a supreme generalissimo yeah and it's ferdinand Foch, and it's because Haig puts his weight behind Foch, a french commander as the supreme commander yeah that's that's kind of what gets fosh the position and and Haig, he he's, he's got an admiration for them and it's because of their elan the idea of yeah. the french are going to attack and continue attacking always be on the offensive that joffre mentality of not one step back don't stop and wait for the enemy charge at them no matter what Haig has a I mean, we always have to have in the back of our mind when we're talking about Haig that this is a, a, a Victorian colonial cavalryman. Yeah. He has always got that little bug in his head that once we get out onto the open land, we'll, we'll break them with our cavalry charge. And, you know, the hussars will charge them down and spear them and, yeah. and saber them from the back. And so if we always have that in our mind, we get kind of that idea of, oh, well, that's why he gets along with the Frenchman. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I forgot. I forgot that he was also talking to Napoleon's ghost. So sorry. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Henry, Never forget that. Henrietta is talking to Napoleon's ghost. She's sending his the well wishes on to Douglas. So he's getting all the all the advice he needs from the little Corsican. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that's a great point because Haig is always right up until the end of the war is like, guys, 
he's like asking his sub commanders, like, do you need me? Do you need these Lancer divisions that I have in reserve? Do you need the Lancers? And they're like, no, 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 we're good with the machine guns and tanks. He's like, I don't know, got these Lancers for you. Ever seen a Lance up close? Yeah. Well, and we'll see that. What the big part of Passchendaele as we get to it is like, this is designed to open a gap for cavalry. Yep. The whole point of this battle is to open a wide gap in the German lines so that the cavalry can break through and get to the Belgian coast. Oh, it's man. not about like a, a break and grind or anything like that. It's purely de devised as a, um, uh, an opening for cavalry to get in there. He wanted the, the, the victorious group in this war to be the, his, you know, his cavalry. Which... Well, well, I'm saying Colin, Colin, they, you know, horses have four legs. We have two. <laughs> Simple True. Simple I, I mean, whenever anything in doubt, I'm I'm going to Travis for it. You know, that's a yeah. big question. Travis is the man with the answer. Yeah, that's right. I'm also taking back like a touch of what I said before about like trying not to pass judgment. <laughs> you pass a little judgment. Yeah, yeah. like I, well, I guess. Yeah, you're pretty stupid. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, as we get to it, I do want to pose a couple questions to you guys because I've actually, um, I've come around to Hague. When I first started reading about him years and years ago, I was like, this guy's a monster. He's an absolute fucking monster. And then I got to a point where I was like, oh, he's just a weird, religiously, like, very intense person yeah. who doesn't know what they're doing. And now I'm at this point where I'm like, well, we'll get to it. We'll yeah. get to it. I've also, I've kind of gone on that same journey of, like, Butcher of the Psalm, yeah, that's who he is, to, like, now yeah. being like, ah, I we got to give him more credit where it's due. Yeah, I think it's, um, yeah, we'll get there. Yeah. Um, so this subordination of the BEF, Haig is able to work out a compromise where, for now, it's only going to last during uh, the Nivelle Offensive. So once the offensive's over, the BEF will have more of its independent action back. However, uh, once again, just like last year, the Allies failed to account that the enemy is also allowed to make their own plans. So last time, <laughs> they didn't realize Verdun was coming, even though they should have seen the German buildup. This time, they were... What's the word phrase for it? False-footed? Wrong-footed? They are wrong-footed wrong by the Germans. Yeah. Operation Albrecht was the German commander's plan for 1917. It had been ongoing basically since November of 1916, I think. Basically, uh, the Germans had recognized that the Allies had the material and the manpower advantage. They knew that more likely than not, the U.S. is going to be coming into the war and that the manpower advantage is just going to get even worse. So instead of trying to hold this really long, winding Western Front that's basically been in place since 1914, they will retreat behind it in some places as far as 30 miles from the front line where they can build defensive lines never before seen in history and never seen again in history really so this is called operation alberic um they create a new defensive line called the siegfried Stallung, or the siegfried line the allies would call it the hindenburg line so if you're ever studying world war one it can get really confusing because different sources will call the same line different things Basically, they retreat in a lot of places to much better and much stronger defensive positions than they were in at the start of the operation. So what's interesting about this, too, is that um, I don't know if you guys have ever read Storm of Steel. Yes. Uh, I Ernst love that Younger's book. famous uh, personal account of his experience. But this particular part 
of of World War One is is again just as unique in history as the the trenches and every, barbed wire and everything. What they're doing is they're not just retreating back to like a ridge line to set up more machine guns. They are dismantling miles upon miles of Belgian and uh, Belgian countryside. And by this, like they are taking sledgehammers to every structure. And then in the rubble, they're planting booby traps. But the booby traps are so devious and hellish that they're not just like a grenade with a tripwire. They are time bombs set for weeks after they know that the allies will have taken that ground mm -hmm. so that you'll be going out to take a leak you know, six months after you've taken over this part of the the, the line and all of a sudden a bomb is going to go off. And they're devised in a way that it's acid that is slowly corroding the um, firing pin or the mechanism that ignite, you know. Yeah, uh, like the divider between the, it. Yeah. Exactly. And so there's all this just incredibly shitty stuff that they're doing as they're going. And it, it they're poisoning wells. They're killing everything. Anything edible is being killed and yeah. not even eaten, just killed and left there. Because you can also put a shell inside of the guts of a cat or inside the guts of a cow. And as everybody's starving, tries to go and pick it up to eat it, boom, there goes yeah. eight guys. Um, they're doing just crazy shit. And then it's it has an effect on these guys. Ernst Younger writes about how, mm -hmm. like, it makes them feel insane. Because yeah, he said it like drove the men to madness because they're yeah. like, think about like if you and 20 guys are just dis told destroy this village, like eventually you just kind of hit a point where you're just frenzied and like throwing tiles off the ceilings and just going nuts. Pictures basically. of children and their family yeah. and you're literally just tearing, you've already gone through three years of this madness and now you're enhancing that madness by denuding the landscape of any kind of humanity in the process of going to further the duration of the madness it's it's a fucking insane yeah uh in in evil concept i think it's 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 purely ludendorff and yeah it's brilliant it's brilliant because it's you know it's the opposite of what most military dictum at the time would say is you never give up the land the yeah because ground... he got a lot of pushback when he was initially proposing it like a lot of the other german high commanders were like no how dare you like we can't surrender one inch of soil the and it's like this is like, actually was... a smart plan yeah and and this is where he starts to assert himself as like tr well and truly the dictator of the german empire yeah. because he's yeah. like no fuck it we're gonna do this tear it apart mm-hmm Tom, what goofs can we talk about now? Can we talk I was about... Just... <laughs> I was just saying, if the United States was... was involved in that one, they probably would have invented crack quicker. Yeah. <laughs> oh, see, I was going to be very sensitive and say, like, was that the guy who uh, started the most extreme uh, ninja challenge or whatever the hell it is? <laughs> Setting up that course? Right. <laughs> oh. Look at all this fresh oh, water good. we can't drink. Yeah. We have to jump he's, over he's it. He's a city designer for Portland, Oregon. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I every time I I'm hungry and go for a cat, I don't know what's inside of it. Mm -hmm. I think if you eat cat, you're all right by me. <laughs> I'm a scavenger though. I don't kill anyone. So I uh, I mentioned they that do it to me. <laughs> 
the allies uh, probably should have seen Verdun coming uh, just because he could have noticed all the buildup. And Operation Albrecht, they could have, they did notice that you know the Germans are building these defensive lines behind their front line, but they also, while this destruction's happening, they still are keeping a very small number of units just barely holding the front line to give the appearance that they haven't retreated. So the Allies are like, there's always a machine gun nest at this one point opening up fire. So they're like, oh, it's, there's still Germans there, but it's probably just two guys that are told, like, hang back while we all run away. And God, so it must have sucked to be those two guys. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Hans looks like we got the small straw. Yeah. Oh, this is also, <laughs> this is literally the plot of the movie 1917 for anyone who's seen it. This have, is the I, plot of it. I haven't seen it yet, um, but I heard it won an award. So I have to watch. Probably it. like sound design. Yeah, <laughs> you can write up your allies. It didn't yeah. win the big awards. It was one take with air quotes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Huge, massive air quotes. <laughs> sound design is too easy for wars. It's a bunch of explosions and bullets. Yeah. But Operation Albright uh, did succeed for the Germans. It uh, reduced the length of the front line by 25 miles. It freed up 14 divisions of troops. And it wasn't until the uh, end of March that the Allies realized uh, just how massive this retreat operation was. Like, they noticed it in some sectors, but they didn't realize just how far they'd be pulling back. Um, so the Nivelle's offensive is now in jeopardy. Like, they had all these plans for the attack, and now the Germans aren't where they were planning to attack them. Oh, Nivelle's on, like, guys. this is fine. Now they're even further away. Oh, perfect. <laughs> <laughs> they're... There that we can we can work out on the way over there. They, yeah, we already achieved some of our day one objectives. Hey, a dead cat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. So, uh, sorry. So while Operation Albright was mostly done uh, in secret, you know, hidden from the Allies, both the Allies and the Germans were very aware of Nivelle's coming attack. It was so well known that it was being debated in newspapers in France and England, like, if this was the right idea. Oh. Yeah. That's not smart. good. Yeah, very not great. Smart. Uh, Haig had a diary entry on April 4th. Enemy captured the whole plan of attack of three French corps. <laughs> so they knew exactly what three French corps were planning to the detail. Oh. Cool. Uh, the main for uh, focus of the attack was going to be in the Champagne region of France. Um, the German defensive line before... Or Connor, they were real quick. Yeah. I, I hate to keep in interrupting you. No, because please do. I, I, That's what you're here for. <laughs> what I think is interesting there is that this is kind of a microcosm of the entire war right there. What you just, what you just hinted at and nailed mm -hmm. on. The enemy knows that we're coming. They have our fucking plan. <laughs> yeah. but there's nothing we can do about it because we've been stockpiling and reserving equipment, ammunition, men, and just the momentum and energy that goes into an offensive for months. Yeah. We've built railheads to depots right behind our line. We've created all this weight. And if we were to, to divert it at this point, it could do more damage, um, in the long term than if we go and have a failed offensive yeah which is what happened in in the summer of 1914 it's like everybody knew oh the russians are mobilizing the austrians are mobilizing the germans are mobilizing now the french are mobile but the weight behind all these things and the amount of 
of of human effort that went into it meant that there was no brakes. There's no brake pads that can apply enough pressure to that. Once it's going, it just has to reach its logical end, or at least that's the perception of the time. Now, yeah. obviously, we now know, oh, you can get to the brink of nuclear war and still find a way to kind of stop yourselves. But yeah. at the time, and I think it's a large function of the communication issues, is like, when you have 48 hours between communication or, or 24 hours, that's where we're at at this time. And, and it's it's an interesting little, um, you know, telescoping in on the way that that can, can really fuck you over. Because you're right. Everybody knew what was not only were they talking about the Nivella offensive in London and in Paris, but there were newspapers in Berlin. <laughs> that are talking about the Novell offensive and nailing down exactly where it was going to be. Yeah. Like there was no mystery to this at all. And and you mentioned it earlier that finally the French and British are talking to each other again. An interesting thing about Nivelle is I believe his mother was English. Yeah. And so he spoke perfect English. I don't think he, he had like no accent, mm -hmm. which is why a lot of the British commanders and politicians were sold on this idea. They were like, oh, Oh, he's a, he's he's a jolly good guy. He's 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 not a fraud. Yeah, he's, he's a nice chum. He's, he's a good boy. Yeah. This guy puts beans on bread. On more bread. Come on. He's one who, of us. Who couldn't love the man? So <laughs> I I do think it's a it's a good point at which to recognize like even if everybody knows what's going to happen. Yeah. At this time period, when you're putting that much effort into an offensive, it has to fucking jump off. Yeah, like you said, um, there's a momentum that just carries it to its conclusion, and there there are ways to, for them to stop it, but no one. Be, I think because there's no supreme commander, there is no one. Everyone might be looking around like we should stop this, but no one's going to be the one to step forward and say we need to stop this. Tom, I that would be you if we ever did like a live tour of it. That, you would have to have that decision. Why? Because you know everyone would show up with all the shrimp, and I'm not going to be able to back down. There's going to be piles and piles of shrimp. My it stomach has to reach up. its logical conclusion. Yeah, yeah. It must be in my stomach. Well, That's the funny. venue rider is a pile of shrimp, then of course it's going to be there. I can see it a mile away. You're right. And Travis, if you bring your own shrimp, then yeah, that's the end result. I always keep pocket shrimp. I brought the cork today. <laughs> well, your honor, this juror is eating shrimp out of his pocket. He needs to be dismissed. Well, no, he's they like, he's... they're like, wow, that's a bright boy. He should be judge. And I was judge for the rest of the day. <laughs> yeah, these, uh, like, it is so weird. Like, we're living in the age of Dorito powered drone strikes. <laughs> and you're describing, like, this, like, we we gotta do something with all well, these it's, it's, cans of paint. Yeah. We gotta paint something. Really, the communication stuff is so crazy. You bring up like, I today watched videos of Ukraine Ukrainian drones dropping bombs on Russian foxholes. Right, that, that happened, happened forty six seconds before. Eighteen you minutes it, ago, yeah. I it happened, and then I got to watch it on Reddit. And then right. Douglas Haig doesn't know what's going on at the front line of the Somm thirty six hours away. later. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, a mile in front of him. Yeah, and 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 then remember though. He is at the spear point of the most advanced military in the history of the world at that time. <laughs> yeah. Like he's, if anybody had the most advanced technology and capabilities in the world, yeah, it's him. And yet it leaves him completely blind once he gives that final like yeah, go ahead. Once, once the sir, final approval goes. Sir, we received half a pigeon. I think we're not doing well. 
so we're saying they all the everyone knows what's coming it's going to be in the champagne region uh german uh strength when they planned the attack there were 10 divisions again at a different front line now there are 43 german divisions at a better defended position novell is still like this is perfect it works exactly what i wanted to do now there's more of them that we can capture in the initial phase so the BEF for their part um, in this offensive, I think it's just known as the Nivelle Offensive overall. Yeah. 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 Um, the BEF did really well. Uh, concentrated high explosive artillery, creeping barrages, lots of mines. They're paying dividends. One of the biggest victories of the war for the Allies happens uh, during this offensive. The Canadians seize Vimy Ridge, which is a huge ridge line occupying the area. But it was still extremely costly. This was just a supporting action. And it had 30,000 dead and 160,000 casualties for the British. Yeah, that's that's a big one for those maple syrup boys. Yeah. They, they I think that out. was all all British uh, losses and casualties. It was the Canadians who took the VME Ridge, but the numbers was all British forces. Yeah, well, you know, they feed them with the good stuff. Yeah. Tree, <laughs> tree blood. Dude, hold, hold on. Little little side story about tree blood real quick. <laughs> Some guy wanted to reissue my old band's stuff, and he lived up in Canada, and he wanted to do a pressing of compilation of the Ultra Guy shit, and uh, our stipulation, well, not my stipulation, but Gabe's was like, you better send us some syrup, and then you could, you could press those fucking albums yeah. all you want. Uh, the guy sent maple, I mean, sugar-free maple syrup? It's like, what? Is that what? A said thing? No? They took it out? Like, I don't know, <laughs> they but took like, the sugar he sent five <laughs> bottles of this shit. Like, here you go, boys. It's like, how? I hope I you make no stupid, money. But I, I hope you make no syrup money. was like all sugar. Yeah, I also that's, thought it was. I thought it was. You get the sap from the tree, you boil it down till it's sugar. I thought it was just woody sugar. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm sure those boys at Vimy Ridge would tell you otherwise. Yeah. yeah. Sorry for face. the real tangent there. That was fucking. That's crazy. Is, I, do you taste it yet? No, I'm not gonna eat this shit. I mean, you got it for free. You might as well try it. Uh, look, all I'll right. Well, I'll save I think it. you have to send a bottle to me and Travis, and then we all chug one. <laughs> yeah. yeah, chug it, shotgun. I'll just wait till I'm diabetic, and then I go. Oh, I can't wait. Yeah, can't wait to get my mouth on some of that. <laughs> That's how I'll talk when I'm diabetic, of course. Yeah. Uh, continue though. Yes. Back to World so War that was I. the the British effort in the Nivelle Offensive. Uh, some great successes, but still horrific casualties. However, this was a French operation, and for the French, it was a complete disaster. Uh, the German lines hold in almost every place that they're attacked. Within three days, they inflict a hundred thousand casualties on the French army. No major ground advancements are made. Nivelle, despite having a forty-eight hour promise, keeps trying to say, "No, it's just around the corner. It's just around the corner." Uh, I think he's given like another a week, maybe. Um, either way, he's removed for this disaster, and he is replaced by Philip Pétain. Uh, Pétain had been the hero of the French army at Verdun. And now he is the commander of the French army. So this is actually a fact. In Paris, the headlines uh, after this failure were, Suck me bleu! <laughs> That's not I fact. don't believe you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't believe you. Yeah. Uh, so Patan, um, he was always known as a, a soldier's general. You know, someone who looked after, cared for his troops, was always trying to minimize casualties. That's what... Um, had one, he was also really good at artillery. That's kind of why he was brought in at Verdun and succeeded there. 
So he shifts to a new strategy for the French. He realizes that the army is in no state to launch any offensives and basically shifts to mirror the German strategy of just defensive focus. And by this point, the Americans had entered the war, so let's wait for the Yanks to come over and they can hold the line. It goes a lot further than that because the French army basically goes on strike after the Nivelle Offensive. There's nothing more French than going on strike. And the French army is going on strike. Well, they're being lied to. Being lied to. They're being and lied also, to. they're not. The, I think a key component of this is they are not saying they won't fight. Right. They are absolutely saying if the Germans come over no man's land, we will defend these trenches with all of our being. But we will no longer throw ourselves into pointless, unmitigated disaster after unmitigated disaster yeah. at the behest of some fucking jumped up colonel right. who thinks he has a new idea on how to beat the the foe. So it's not, you know, again, this is that one of those myths about the French are cowards and they're terrible soldiers and all this. And, no, this is like extreme word. bravery to just say, like, we're disobeying it's, orders, but we're still going to defend the country. We'll defend it, and we'll probably get shot for doing this yeah. by our own side, you know? Yeah. Because that's I, – I don't know how many are, are – I, I think when Peyton comes in, he kind of cools it down enough where they, they shoot a few of the ringleaders and a few officers that were – um, kind of malcontents or whatever, but at the at the beginning of these these little, and it's kind of if you look at the the French map at the time, it's it's like little flashpoints all up and down the line, and then mm -hmm. all by by at a certain point, there's like no units on the front line that are willing to do anything offensive. Yeah, and that means that almost that in, like any of these guys could have legally been shot for yeah. for. Uh, cowardice and the fact that Patan, Patan is able to come in and kind of calm things down enough um, is a testament to him but it also again what we talked about earlier where this this is part of the Patan um, psychology that we oh, see yeah. in, in the late 30s is that not only did he see Verdun where that you know the the youth of France goes to die, but he also saw how fragile and how potentially dangerous it was to have men in a position of of weakness like that, and the potential that the French could just crumble um, was always in the back of his head. Later, when he's dealing with the Nazis in the late thirties, so it, it's another feather, you know, another layer of of context for what we see after the war and the, the mentality of any of these generals who go on to lead in world war ii mm -hmm. was, was was that was any of the insurrection any of the bernie bros showing up you know those dirty socialists <laughs> no they were all andrew yang supporters oh okay <laughs> that's, all, that's right it no was but was the yang gang yeah was was any of them like socialists? yeah, yeah absolutely yeah, the, um, absolutely one of the one of the very few uh, French war memoirs that's been translated to English is by this guy Louis Bartas, who is a barrel yeah. maker. Like you were talking about, like how everyone had a, a trade. Yeah. In World War One, this guy was a barrel maker and also like an avowed socialist. And so he, the whole time, he I, I've never read his book, but he I know like I saw it mentioned in a few um, of the sources I was reading. He like there are people giving speeches and they like break their rifles, and it's all like you're saying, Colin. It's up and down the line. And it's not 
wholesale like disobedience sometimes it's just a company getting drunk when they're supposed to be on watch sometimes Ooh, it's like yeah it's like small Ooh, stuff it's like yeah. um you're ordered to do trench raids that was really common was trench raids and everyone hated it you'd have to crawl across no man's land at night don't jump into the enemy trench lines and st either capture prisoners or, or just get shot or just get shot and they just refuse to do that well yeah i mean yeah that's a that's a pretty reasonable yeah so it's all these like small scale levels of disobedience and because it's small scale but throughout the whole french army that's why Patton is telling the british basically we can't go on the offensive what's amazing is that the germans have no idea this is happening they are completely in the dark they have no idea that the french army is basically in a full-blown mutiny even it's a weird yeah weird... even the british don't really know well you're just describing like the german army falling back and creating this like unbelievable like defense mm -hmm. so that's where they're going to hang it back yeah right like right. They're, they're like what's let's make let's make this unbreakable so it, but if they had known this was happening they would have launched tried to launch they, probably they, wouldn't they weren't really in a position to like but that, yeah they would have like tried recreate a defense line if they knew that the other army wasn't going to be on attack yeah yeah they there there are also accounts that they thought it was a trap so mm -hmm. there were, like you were saying, the Louis Bartas types who were kind of rabble-rousing, and there were leaflets that they were sending over to the Germans being like, hey, if you guys don't fight, we won't fight. And let's all just put down our guns and, and be friends and not, you know, we don't have to do this. The, the cruel capitalist uh, aristocracy is controlling this. And the German... You know the german officers were getting these from from their own trench raids and saying like oh no this is some kind of this is some kind of sneaky frog thing yeah. where we're gonna go over <laughs> yeah. and they're gonna have this like is some french weapon. ruse yeah. we've yeah. watched yeah. funny <laughs> cartoons before we yeah. know what this is like yeah one one officer goes to his talk fritz remember last time that uh the man in berlin showed up and said want to be friends and you went down into that basement in the basement and he beat you for seven days in a ball gag mask <laughs> Nine nine nine. This is the nineteen seventeen pulp fiction. So yeah. you know. Everybody ends up in a gimp suit at the end. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's yeah. one or... <laughs> That so was the end of uh, nineteen seventeen the movie, right? <laughs> it was really just a prequel. Yeah. And just darts into Ms. Erlu. Yeah. <laughs> so I forget if it was um Haig or it might have been Lloyd George, but one of them is in a at a conference in Paris and asks Paton like Hey, what's going on? And Patan's like, no, no, it's all under control. You know, we've had some units disagreeing, disobeying, but like, we're going to be okay. And then they just straight up ask him, are you able to go on to attack? And that they, I think it was uh, Lloyd George. And then he writes in his diary, Patan just smiled and said nothing. Yeah. So like, he's just like, I'm not telling you yes or no. So. <laughs> oh, cool. Yeah. That's a really, really great anything. teamwork from the allies on this one. <laughs> just smile. are you gonna get that report done by the end of the week smile smile <laughs> don't don't nod or shake your head so i asked him so he looked at me i asked him straight up yeah <laughs> but what did he do straight up looked at me that's exactly Continue. what lord the boy george who's are we talking about boy george uh right? boy lloyd yes. george boy george <laughs> The British Prime Minister, yeah. end of World War One. Yeah, also, a great, uh, great vocalist. Yeah. <laughs> He's really long, come, come, really come, long come, life. Come, come, come. Yeah. Wait, that's not Boy George, is it? I don't even. Yeah, know. that's yeah, him. No, that is. Isn't it? Oh, okay. He did it. Yeah. 
So the disaster of the Nivelle Offensive, followed by the French mutinies, um, this ensures that Haig and the British Expeditionary Force is not going to be wholly subordinate to the French for the rest of the year, at least. So that suits Douglas Haig just fine. He now has a free hand to carry out the war as he sees fit. And for the first time in the entire war, Haig is now able to dictate strategy rather than just tactics. So we talked about how before he's the overall commander, uh, when John French is the BEF commander, he's just telling Haig, here's the attack, figure out how to attack. And even though he disagrees with it a few times. And then at the Somme, that was kind of like a joint high command thing. Now Haig has his a free hand to do with as he wishes. So what does he want to do? He's been hoping for this since 1915. He wants to assault uh, the northern parts of the line in Belgium with a couple of goals. The first is liberating the Belgian Channel ports. Uh, this would also end the U-boat menace, as most of the U-boats were based out of Belgium. But most importantly, it would Get achieve... sick, sick waffles. Oh, <laughs> no, they had a little bit of waffle land. They had, like, the tiniest little sliver of Belgium still free. Um, so this was the goal of the final elusive breakthrough where the cavalry can ride to glory, roll up the German line from the north, and end the war in one fell swoop. Right, but with, with horses. With horses. Yeah, <laughs> I just imagine Haig, the kind of guy who counts horses to go to bed. <laughs> uh, well, Travis, you sent me some of the artwork before. He's just the horse boy. So every he's day like, he's living in the chateau, uh, like a couple miles behind the line. Right. He also makes sure that... Um, the path that he rides his horse on every morning mm -hmm. is sanded so that his horse doesn't fall down. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, do, you, do you think that if he was like our parents' age-ish, uh, his favorite movie would be like Easy Rider? He's like, it's like a steel steed, bruh. Freedom. Freedom. He probably would love motorcycles because he, he doesn't, he likes machinery. Like he... He doesn't turn away from it completely. Like that's kind of a false impression a lot of people have of him. He'd probably love riding a Harley. I think. Yeah, he probably also hmm. took out Lawrence of Arabia. You know. <laughs> I don't know. I just the the uh, a horse girl living in a chateau just works. Yeah. So why not? So where is this going to take place? Well, you said Belgium. There was a tiny little town in Belgium known as Ypres. Uh, it's also been seen to pronounce Eep. Um, I always say Ypres. What do you say, Colin? Uh, it's Eep if you're a historical snob, but mm. you're right. Yeah. And I say Ypres, but the, the Tommies, the British soldiers, called it Wipers. Wipers. <laughs> well, it's spelled, spelled yeah. uh, Y-P-R-E-S. Yeah. Uh, so wipers. They, they wipers. We're all going to Wipers. I like that. <laughs> I'm calling it Wipers from now yeah. on. <laughs> so Wipers had already seen two major battles. Uh, there was the first Battle of Ypres in 1914, and then there was the second Battle of Ypres in 1915. Haig had been leading the divisions involved in both of these battles and actually did quite well for himself. Uh, in 1914, uh, this is when the BEF is guarding the French flank up the coast, basically solidifying the Western Front. Um, and in the second battle, it was the BEF holding off a major German advance, like the last major push through Belgium. And that was also when the Germans first use a mass gas attack in the war. Um, so this area had seen heavy, heavy fighting for basically the duration of the war. Third Ypres, which is what we're going to be talking about, is better known as the Battle of Passchendaele, which is another town nearby. 
So the first phase of this is going to be an attack on Messina Ridge, and it is one of the rare start-to-finish, well-executed operations of World War I, because it starts on June 7th, when at 3.10 a.m., 19 mine shafts are detonated underneath the German lines on this ridge. It is a but, sound loud enough to be heard in London. Gee. Before we move on, I, I, I think it's important to kind of paint a picture of Wipers itself. Yes, go. And you've got this, this Belgian kind of medieval cloth hall, you know, and there was actually a cloth hall, and it's this incredibly old, ornate building. Um, it is, it's a gorgeous Flanders Fields type uh, medieval building built on the back of the textile trade in the 13, 14, and 1500s. And then... Oh, you're basically describing like West Philadelphia. Yeah, yeah. I was actually... <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking of Pittsburgh. But, oh, okay. uh, Pittsburgh. All right. But it's, it's, it's in a uh, salient, so it's a, a pocket of jutting out uh, line that the Allies have that's jutting out into the, the German line. But the problem is it's not a very healthy pocket. It's not one you want to have because the sides of the triangle... Uh, the two sides that the Germans are 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 manning are ridges. They they have the high ground, so they've got their artillery positioned all along the saline, and it's a uh, it's kind of a, a chicken shoot down in there. Like they are dropping all sorts of artillery into this little pocket where uh, Wipers is and where Haig is building up for his offensive. So. Mm -hmm. They the the process of building up for this uh, is really interesting. They build small like um, fake woods, and they they pretend like you know one day Germans are looking down. They're like, I thought those bushes were over there yesterday, and then the next day they move four hundred yards to the right, and they're like, Holy shit, that fucking bush is moving! Wait, they're <laughs> literally doing the Tom and Jerry thing. They're, doing, they're like they, in the bush, and then they they're yeah. doing the the Looney Tunes yeah. thing. They they build um uh, a bunch of uh, narrow gauge trail uh, train lines directly to the front because they have to build up ammo for the the uh, requisite. Uh, artillery bombardment before their offensive begins and so they've got to figure out a way to do it and they're they're running all this uh ammunition up at night they're digging down into the ground to create ammunition depots that would be protected against the enemy artillery the whole thing was again one of those major uh huge endeavors to get enough weight behind the offensive push that it'll actually sustain itself as it begins moving forward mm -hmm. And uh, remind me, Connor, who is the general on Messina Ridge there? The German one? No, the Amer uh, the uh, the British. I forget if it was Goff or Plummer. I think those... it's Goff. I think yeah. it's Goff. And um, and it's oh no no Plummer Plummer yeah because you know, Plummer was the good one. Plummer yeah, was yeah. the good one. Plummer's yeah. the good one. Goff's the joke. Um, <laughs> but but Plummer is kind of like your. Uh, you know, if, if, if you were to cast him, it'd be like Brian Cox. He's gruff. He's like, he's been saying this whole time, like, just let me do what I fucking want to do. I know what I got to do here. I got to blow these fucking, this, this, this giant crater in the middle of their line. And then I will funnel a shit ton of men in there and we will bite and hold. We'll create a little, little snatch of it. And then we'll fortify the hell out of that. 
push everything up behind us and we'll just keep doing that the whole way mm -hmm. it ends up being the the way that you break trench lines yeah it is the winning strategy but on a small it, scale it's, it's just so time consuming and it's so resource consuming that everybody looks at it and they're like well can't we just send in the cavalry like <laughs> yeah. when do can't we get we to ride through in glory to the end <laughs> yeah because I there's, wanna... there's no glory in it at all yeah i don't want to spoil anything but that means that this guy goth is basically will smith and he has the cricket like cricket? you got like the tommy lee jones character Oh yeah. man! Oh, that's hilarious! Will Smith, you know. Yeah. Yeah. What does this do? We are dating <laughs> the shit out of ourselves right there. <laughs> Dude, also, but... everything that you've described about this positioning seems very counterintuitive. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh... not a health... well. So, so actually, this is why the Germans, the Germans, the reason for Operation Albrecht is that they had this exact thing. Mm -hmm. in their part of the line it was jutting out into the allied position oh but but salience like that they lose their value once you get into um uh static uh static warfare because so if you think of your, your two lines are are up like this and if you can poke and fold your enemy and then keep driving in that's where you see a lot of like the the uh tank mobile warfare victories of world war ii yeah the the, the blitzkrieg is all about pushing in on that and then just you know splitting yeah push the static if, defense until it sh cracks but right exactly. but if you have but if you, have you have can't a, get enough landscape crack it yeah but yeah. so then look at this so like a straight line straight line um i have a we have an equal amount of force there but once you create that curvature now i am forced to defend all of that yeah and every time that i want to attack i have to fill that space up with more and more men to eventually push forward yeah right it, but if the defensively landscape... you're much safer right but but what i'm saying is like that landscape seems so counterintuitive um that even if it was about gaining ground like wouldn't you try to create that dent somewhere else in the line oh well that was not a it, I, that wasn't an intentional thing by the allies what they weren't capable of doing at that point or they were capable of it they just chose not to was in where where ludendorff looks at this salient and says you know what we could do is we could just we could keep that line and then just retreat back to this point and then they have to go through this killing zone right. when they want to attack us the allies are like oh well we have the salient already we we need to use it yeah we, can't, we need to push out of we it. can't retreat we've got to just keep pushing forward Look, okay you have yeah. to you have to push your turd into your butt <laughs> if you just do it half ass you're gonna shit on your hand that's how you get a shitty fucking hand you have to make sure it's back in there dude <laughs> He's not wrong, and and, and not wrong. Passchendaele will turn out to be a shitty, shitty hand. Yeah, yeah. and Colin, you're uh, wise to bring up like the the Germans control all the high ground, and just to hammer home what this landscape is like. When we say high ground, it's a hundred feet. It's like two hundred feet above sea level. This is flat, barren dirt. Okay. I in Belgium, again, which is also mostly waterlogged. Like, right. the water line's yeah. 18 inches below the ground. The, the, the water table is so close that it... Uh, we'll get to it when we get to the, yeah, to the, the mud. meat, meat <laughs> right. potatoes. But. I, was, I was assuming something rather drastic. Mm. I was no, assuming no, something... No, I'm sorry. That's, no. that's my fault. Like, okay. the, 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 
the highest point i think in this area is like 312 feet above sea level oh okay. yeah, yeah I, I was These imagining are like molehills yeah yes. no they're I was fighting imagining... on long island <laughs> long island long island yeah okay <laughs> jane's hill is the dominating high ground that's fine and uh thanks but, for clear but here's the thing that up. in this battlefield 100 feet is 100 feet might as well be a mile yeah. because it's it is so so such an um such a uh what's the word i'm looking for a, a shit show well it's just such a a uh a power multi multiplier it's force such multiplier a yeah force multiplier that uh, you know it, it doesn't matter how high it's it's higher than the the people trying to attack you mm-hmm. um wait, wait before we move forward this is an absolute tangent but colin can you say uh killtacular and Mount Kilimanjaro, because I would make a new Halo game, and uh... <laughs> we need yeah, the kill streak. Spectacular and Mount Kilimanjaro. Fuck yes, perfect. Fuck you, Bungie. I'm making a better one. I wish Bungie still made Halo. Yeah, it'd be so much better. Anyway, <laughs> so we left off. It's uh, June seventh. They detonate these mine shafts. They blow up basically this whole ridge line. They send in the Canadians, and they seize this ridge within two hours. Uh, actually, no, within just a half hour of the men going over the top, they have seized Messina Ridge. Great victory for the Allies. And we talked about. I'm sorry, you guys froze up for a minute. Did we talk about the mines? No. All I said was they blew up, and you could hear them in London. But we talked oh, yeah. about the mining um, a little bit, like the mining operations last episode. Okay. Where it's yeah. like. These crazy underground tunneling operations. Like how terrifying it must have been digging, you know, in different yeah. directions and, you know, the ground shaking above you and all that jazz. Yeah. So the explosion um, heard in London uh, broke glass as far away as Ireland. You know, window panes in, in Ireland were cracked. Shoddy, shoddy and glass. I think... Yeah. I think it's the the largest man-made explosion before the atomic bomb. Yeah, I think it's still the loudest ever non-nuclear man-made sound. W- wasn't the loudest actually near you, uh, Colin? Wasn't there like a weird oh right that that, that is louder in um, by Maine or oh Halifax? Yeah, the, 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 the ammo dump. Yeah, yeah, the ammo dump. I think in in World War One, right? Wasn't it like nineteen eighteen, nineteen seventeen? I thought. I think it was World War Two. Oh, maybe, maybe, but yeah, but yeah, there was I that. That is, a I think you're right. But All right. it, um, I think it was a thousand or fifteen hundred German troops that were directly above. It might have been three thousand, but um, the German troops that were above this this. No, the, it was a series of mines. I think it was yeah. six or eight that were exploded. But the guys that were above the large one were vaporized. Yeah. Like just, just whole units disappearing into mist. That's ceasing to go. exist <laughs> in the blink of an eye, just totally gone. I'm honestly, uh, in, since in terms of. They dug the mines and then they had the old timey, like black, you know, with the fuse and just rolled it down the mine. <laughs> I mean, you're not far off. Yeah. Like, that's, that is funny, but it's also kind of. <laughs> I mean, in, um, in terms of World War One deaths, this is probably one of the best ways to go. Like oh, sleeping dude, in your sleeping in your right. little crater. It's three in the morning. What are you talking about? World War One, all of death <laughs> and all that's, deaths. Yeah, that's exactly yeah, this is how good, I want to yeah. go. Yeah. I want to. I want the whole North Shore to just 
you just vaporized. Yeah. Yeah. And I wake up dead as shit. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we, we did, we kind of glanced on the, with the French not wanting to do these trench raids. I mean, I think that's probably one of the worst ways to go. I mean, it was hand to hand, brutal digging, gouging out eyes, you know, whatever you had on hand, you're, hand-to-hand -hand combat mm -hmm. you can see some like echoes of it if you read any of the um the uh the tunnel rats from vietnam mm -hmm. their oh, accounts yeah. of like you're in a tiny little hole with a gun and like a lighter or a flashlight and you can hear shit behind you but you can't turn around to look you know so that you sometimes you're so confined in this space that like you cannot look behind you uh, but you can me. hear the guy behind <laughs> you moving. Yeah. Uh, and you just got to hope that it's one of your guys. And and then, you know, you can't really see what's in front of you until it's, you know, four or five feet in front of you, maybe even less. And then your your motion, your ability to actually do anything is restricted. The the heat, the unbearable heat, the, the lack of air. Um, I don't know if you've seen the movie The Descent. Yes. Uh, it's a horror movie from like 20 years ago. It's bunch pretty of, good. Bunch of broads go down and spelunk into a <laughs> exactly, hole. Exactly. Yeah, I remember yeah. that one. Also, there, that... Are, there are a few scenes in there where you can feel that, like everything's closing in on you. And it's, uh, I can't, I can think of a few places, um, maybe being in a U-boat a uh, where <laughs> it would be a more like heinous place to be and fight and live. Mm -hmm. Um but yeah, they, these mines go off. They are incredibly effective in not just in like the physical aspect of making your enemy disappear, but like all the Germans behind those guys are like, what the fuck just happened? Yeah. Because they don't, they can't really, they know it's a mine, but they're also like, that was bigger than any mine. So is this a new gun? Is this a new yeah. artillery this... round that they're firing down on us? So now it's put, put them in a position where they're hesitating. And then the allies follow that up with, with uh, boots on the ground. But if you ever get a chance, go online and look at pictures of um, uh, the, the crater at Messina uh, Ridge now. And it, Try and imagine, I mean, Travis, you and I probably wouldn't be the guys out there doing this, but like, you know, you guys look fit and I can't imagine safely running down this crater and then running back up. I would have a heart attack, <laughs> but like just, I know me, I would like break an ankle halfway down. I'd drop my gun and accidentally <laughs> shoot my buddy and then like <laughs> land on top of my grenade and it goes off. But like it would be uh, comical, but I'm sure it wasn't comical for the guys when when they got the word that they had to go. Oh, go take that thing we just blew up, and they get over there and they look down and it's a 80 foot deep hole yeah. in the ground. Yeah, and then they have to go up the other side 80 feet as the Germans fight. are starting to get their <laughs> you know their heads back on, and they start to mount the ridge on the other side and and get back in defensive positions. It, it is a really interesting thing. If you can see photos of the explosion um, actually occurring and you can see the modern day effect that it had on the land. It's, this is that classic world war one is such a bizarre experience for mankind because it's not just, we're going to fuck your people up, but we're going to fuck up the land. We're going to reconfigure the earth. Yeah, itself. We're, we're changing topography wild one shell at a time and it's like yeah very very like, rapidly here yeah it's like when that guy released the goatsy picture yeah like yeah uh, the, internet up the whole like, internet 
Yeah, the internet was like, I didn't know a butthole could do that. Guys. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I have to admit, I don't know what you're referring to. Oh, it's oh. A good. It's a <laughs> well done. Hands pulling his butthole apart. All right, all right. Well, I will I will definitely be looking that up tonight. Look, you might be the expert on board here, but, you know, when it Tra comes Travis to has his own expertise. Sucks, yeah. I don't know. He's an expert on the lower body. <laughs> In all of its many forms. Yes. Yeah. I. What you're saying about, like, oh, like, I would run down that thing, break an ankle, just, like, I'd kill myself. I would just, <laughs> like, I, I'm not doing this. It's going to be me or them. And I got terms. It's gonna here. be me. It's gonna, I'm, I'm, just, I'm gonna eat a fucking bullet right now. Yeah. Goodbye. I don't like my. I don't like any country that much. No. Yeah. You just stand up in no man's land and do the macarena. Yeah. <laughs> it's wild. It's it's absolutely horrifying yep. to imagine having to do any of it. Literally any of it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so this limited success uh, reinforces Haig's belief that. That breakthrough is right around the corner. It also reinforces his beliefs that the German army is on the verge of imminent collapse. This is something Haig kind of always believed throughout the war for no, there's no real evidence for him to believe this except for the fact that he believed it. So then he has all these yes men around him. So they're like, yeah, sure. Whatever you say, Doug. He always thinks the Germans are about to surrender. Well, and well one of those told, Napoleon told him that. I, I, yeah, you know, <laughs> Napoleon Travis, told him. You joke, and it is funny, but it's also true. Like, one of the yes men that you're referring to, Connor, is God. Yes, uh, that's had right. This very weird religious angle where he's like chosen by the Lord to to be a a white knight and kind of the the savior of his people. Um, and he truly, like he, 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 he looked at his diaries, his writings. He really believed in like that old school fire and brimstone Protestant mentality of mm -hmm. like, I am a chosen hand of God sent here to do one thing. And it is to break the, you know, break the heathen German on the wheel. And, you know, literally from day one was like, oh no, they're about to lose. Yeah, I know they're about to lose. They're and about to give like, up. Why do you think that? And he would just be like, No, 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 they are. Just, just believe so, me. So you don't need you don't need to talk down to the audience. We've all seen Shrek. He is Scottish. <laughs> we know that he was doing everything for the Lord. He told the Germans to get out of his swamp. That's the movie. Yeah. So, Colin, I'm glad you brought up his faith because part of this is the British intelligence chief, uh, is Major General Sir George McDonough. And he is constantly telling Haig, like, no, you're wrong. The German morale is as high as it's ever been. McDonough had one major drawback. He was Catholic. So Haig inherently distrusted anything he would say to him. Of course. <laughs> those, those fucking papists. Yeah. Those, he's a papist. He's, an Ir he's probably Irish. And he's probably rooting for the Germans secretly. So I don't believe anything he's saying. What a bad Scotsman, Haig. <laughs> I know, right? He all, and he also only ever refers to Britain as England. Even though he's Scottish. Yeah. What an asshole. He's a traitor. <laughs> he's like. Oh, man. Yeah. So McDonough is going around saying, no, German morale is high. And that more and more Germans are coming in because the Russian collapse is basically complete at this point. He's just getting ignored completely. He had complete confidence that Germany was weak. And all these yes men just keep booing all his hopes. Now, we talked about Lloyd George a little bit, and he was not really thrilled about this coming offensive. 
Um, last episode, we talked about the Westerner versus Easterner debate that was happening in the British military and the French military, too, where it's, do we win the war on the Western front or do we find a different front, either Austria-Hungary, maybe Ottoman Empire, or the Eastern front, which is now completely collapsed. Lloyd George is an Easterner. Um, he thinks that we can send troops to the Italian front and overwhelm them there and that we shouldn't be going through with this wasteful decision to attack in Passchendaele. It is very easy to overwhelm an Italian. So Well, and we know, we all know Haig's views on Italians. Right. They're secretly German. Yes. <laughs> so. They just throw a pepperoni in one direction, they all run. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so Lloyd George, he... He can't really control oh, what well, Hague is. Hold on, I think I. Colin has something aside, real to say. I think there is an interesting conversation there, um, in terms of of why why did Lloyd George or or did Lloyd George and the other Easterners like Churchill um, did they really think that they were going to win the war against the Germans in? Turkey or in Austria or again, you know, uh, on the Eastern front with the Russians, I would contend that they didn't really think that that was how you beat Germany. You, the only way you beat Germany is on the Western front with the German army uh, or, you know, against the German army. I think what they're trying to do is there's an angle here of let's sit tight on the Western right. front. Yeah. Yeah. The Sit Americans <laughs> are eventually going to come. And those, those corn fed milk drinking Midwestern boys who are somehow, you know, 80 pounds heavier and four inches taller than everybody we've ever met. <laughs> yeah. They will eventually catch a shit ton more German bullets. And in the meantime, we will be able to start kind of, sending our troops back to the provinces you know the yeah. colonies are really underguarded at the moment yeah and north africa and, and india are kind of like doing their own thing we need to have enough troops to when we win with american support and i don't say that as like a wild crazy american who's like we won the war no this, I, I mean, like, this is french and british generals saying we need american blood yeah <laughs> to literally win this. they Let's... just needed human body shields like yeah. they just wanted humans to be there that weren't part of their and and there was some of that like well this war is going to be won by us yeah we need to start getting our troops back in shape and in the area where they're going to be needed when this is done and part of that is around the empire yeah I, f um, I forget if it was during passchendaele or it might have been in 1918 there was a police strike in england and so lloyd george is like holding back a whole reserve division just in case the police strike gets out of hand to have the troops become the police oh well, so yeah you, you you're hitting on it again right there too where it's like there's also this idea of we're seeing what's happening in russia yep if that happens here in England or in in France, uh, the Irish are starting to do their thing where they're, you know, they're starting a rebellion. We need to have troops at home in fighting shape. And if we keep throwing them on that front in the West, it's not going to do anything. So why don't we throw instead of 500,000 guys or 150,000 guys on the Western front, why don't we throw 60 
over yeah. at the Turks and see, you know, see maybe something will shake loose and the Germans will lose an ally or they'll have to, you know, send extra men somewhere else. Yeah, even if but it we'll, just means one more German division it, is leaving, that's a victory. It, I don't think they really thought that the Western Front is going to melt because Istanbul falls to 75,000 Anzac troops. Yeah. But it's it's become this thing where every time you read a book or whatever they're talking about easterners westerners and i it it smells funny to me in terms of like historical uh we need to create like binary arguments yeah. we need to create good guys bad guys in this drama of opposing opinions and it existed it totally i'm not revisionist here i'm i'm it existed but i don't think it had the the implications that we've we've yeah. been told that it and had. also part of this is that Haig doesn't really live long after the war. This is skipping ahead a little. Churchill writes the his his own history of World War One, so he's kind of absolving himself as a leader in World War One by saying, "No, I had nothing to do with the million British men that died on Western Front because I wanted to fight in Gallipoli." Like, yeah. so it's that a adds- lot of them just kind of saving their own asses by like saying, "Well, I didn't want this Western Front business." It's very interesting because when you read about World War One, there's a lot more cake and figgy pudding involved in the fronts because Churchill, you know, man that loves his figgy pudding, <laughs> just had to write that in there. Hey, you watch your fucking mouth. Don't you badmouth figgy pudding. <laughs> I am a figgy pudding guy. Look at me. I'm basically a sentient figgy pudding. <laughs> I had to explain hey, to my you. wife recently the uh, we won't go until we get some uh, verse of we wish you a Merry Christmas. <laughs> She's like, what the fuck? <laughs> the fuck are these people talking about? That, is, that is extra tangent. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> you know. So uh, Lloyd George, like we said, um, he's not super thrilled with the offensive, but the final approval does come from him because it also he's got a win-win situation on his hands he fucking hates douglas haig has hated him since the moment he became uh prime minister has never liked him once thought has always thought he's an idiot so if haig carries out this offensive and it works great you won the war if haig carries out this offensive and it's a disaster great he can replace haig finally right. so he's kind of got a win-win situation on his hands so it comes on july 20th um the approval for this attack but it includes the following line in its written approval. Quote, the offensive must on no account be allowed to drift into a protracted, costly, and indecisive operation as occurred in the offensive on the Somme. End quote. Which sounds incredibly specific and yet is so vague. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like the entire war. <laughs> I mean, you're, you're not far off. It's just one of those, like, perfectly political... Uh, you know, vague blank statements that allows somebody like Haig to to basically just constantly, and this is throughout, like Travis said, this is kind of the whole war is as far as uh, generals go, they just constantly move the field goal posts. Mm -hmm. So like, okay, well, I, I didn't say it was going to be a breakthrough on the second day. Yeah. (laughs) And then two weeks later, like, well, I didn't say it was going to be a breakthrough two weeks in you know it might be a breakthrough three weeks out. trust me napoleon and god have told me this is the moment <laughs> those germans are terrified just give me one more week have you talked to god yet have you, have you talked to him <laughs> yeah. 
I mean, you're a Welshman. Of course, you don't talk to God. You're a heathen. Yeah, he wouldn't understand your gobbledygook language. <laughs> Far too many letter Y's. Barry is spelled F W R. Come on, where's the vowels, dog? Now, Haig's strategy called for some steady advances, but across a massive front. Um, so these day one objectives are a little bit more limited than they'd been at the Somme, but they are equally unattainable. Uh, as we had been talking about with the German high ground, the, the defensive positions are stronger than ever. Um, and now this is kind of just how the trench warfare evolved at this point, but it also is dictated by the fact that as we said, the water table is really high. You can't really dig the trenches that we'd seen in 1915 and 16. And that idea of a fixed trench line is kind of evaporated. Now it's more troops and shell holes on the front. They are supposed to just kind of occupy and slowly fall back to pillboxes. And then you hold the pillbox line for a little bit and fall back a little further to then you finally have the actual trench line. And by that point, the attackers spent themselves, and you send in the counterattack divisions. They're just hanging out in shell holes. Yeah, how disheartening! And they not only these are waterlogged shell holes. Yes. You know, yeah. that, this could happen like, twice. Yeah, it sounds like very good conditions for clamming, though. Not here, Travis. Not here. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe um, onion I mean, farming. I don't know, yeah. Connor. You've got some of the like firsthand accounts of what these trench holes are like. But just to give the listener an idea, these trench holes in many cases, like like you had said at the beginning of, of the Passchendaele bit, this battlefield is old. It's from, it, it's been fought over since the beginning of the war, 1914. By the time we're here in 1917, it's the summer. It's also the wettest year on record for yeah. like we're, we're, 200 we're, we're, years we're or something that. like good. that. And it's... Uh, it's one of the, I, I love trying to figure out what certain historical moments and places and times would have smelled like. Oh my God. And <laughs> if you, if you try and put yourself in this, if you're in this trench hole, the, there aren't people burying the corpses at this point, not just of the men, but of the horses. And we're talking, you know, throughout World War One, 8.5 million pack animals, horses, donkeys, and, and oxen die in this war. There are long decayed, in the process of decaying, and freshly killed animals everywhere, mm -hmm. including humans. They are like a geologist might look at the uh, at like a cliff and be able to see the different types of rock and what year they were there you're able to look at some of these trench holes and see like, oh, well, that guy's from 1914, clearly. Yeah, yeah that's uh, a French that guy still in from... red pants. Like, <laughs> yeah. It, it's legitimately. And and then on top of that, the they've had gas. You know, there's gas attacks in this area. Now, the gas isn't like what we think of like an aerosol where it like just dissipates into the ether. It's like pollen. So then it falls and it settles onto the top of the water that's at the bottom of these trench uh, at the bottom of these shell holes. So if you slide into one of these, not only are you sliding down a slurry of gore uh, in various stages of decay, but you're sliding into a pool of water that has a thin layer possibly of, of poison, you know, human humecticide on the top of this, this water, or gasoline, 
or kerosene or fuel or whatever might be on there, very possibly a thin layer of just human fat. Oh. Uh, as, as people decay, they release all their juices and, and liquids, they liquefy, and then the fat in, a, in the people uh, floats on the top of these pools. Guys, that you, you read firsthand accounts of men jumping in to uh, take cover during a fire and then coming up and having to slough human fat off of their faces and not being able to get the slick gelatin feel off of their hands without it's absolutely now now that's a a split moment now spend 48 hours in there with your dead dying friend or your dead dying enemy or just your own thoughts and the smell and then the sound of it now uh, across the the 120 feet away in another shell hole is a wounded guy who spends that entire 48 hours screaming for his mom or his wife or his son or whatever. Shut that guy up. Yeah. Uh, And they would. Again, it's not a joke. It's like that. There were literal moments of there's one great story. Well, it's not a great story, but a, um, a great told story. (laughs) Tom, this sounds sounds like literally like the music you listen to. <laughs> yeah, it does. <laughs> like, well, no, it sounds ten times worse than the music you listen. No, to. it sounds exactly the same. <laughs> it it, uh, it is horrifying. I am imagining like some just... kind of like slicked up Joe Rogan coming out of one of these things and going, "This is fantastic." The amount of testosterone I've just pulled off. Yeah. Oh my God. It's just it's, uh, it's great for your skin. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think I can one up you though, Colin. By De- all means, Deadwood Brothel. The smell there. (laughs) I mean, you're talking about land clams. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, A lot of fat there, too. That is a hell of a picture. Yeah. I was was saving this quote for later, but it fits perfectly here. It's the most famous quote, one of the most famous quotes to come out of the whole war. It's by the British war poet Siegfried Sassoon. Uh, In one of his poems, he wrote, I died in hell. They called it Passchendaele. And I think yeah. that's the perfect description of it is. what Colin It's the summation of, of the battle and, and kind of it puts a bow on the war. And it's interesting. There's a uh, Christianity um, uh, crossover here where you have this is happening. And this is probably and I, I know Verdun gets gets a, a big chunk of of attention for being this hellscape of artillery and the psalm gets this a lot of attention for that the first day casualty list but passchendaele is the the breaking of 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 you know it's the showcase for man's inhumanity to man yeah uh and our willingness to do terrible things to the the land and each other and it's um so in Christianity, you had the passion, the passion of the Christ, where in order to get to the cross, Jesus is abused and broken and whipped and beaten and dragged through the crowds and given the crown of thorns. And it is just it's a wonderful historical coincidence that this place is called Passchendaele because yeah. it, it, it brings some of that the echoes of that that deeply christian 
uh, ethos to this moment of time where it's it is the same thing. We are we are donning our crown of thorns and we are dragging ourselves through the most you know barbed wire is is not a far leap from that and and we're dragging ourselves through this impossible uh, quagmire my miasma of of filth to the end result, which is you know it kind of uh, a sacrifice mm-hmm. you know is, is similar i know this is kind of a reach in terms of i'm i'm, tr- I'm sounding more uh, f- religious or philosophical i'm not religious it's not i'm not trying to draw i just no, think but these these guys were religious it's like yes, the men fighting it so it meant something to them it's like they yeah. we were talking about how like how can you ex- we couldn't do this none of us could do this i would never but i just said i would only shoot myself only a victorian era yeah, british I, I, could I, do I, shit like like i would find that, hill, i would yeah. shoot myself yeah i'd find that fat pile and just put my face into it and well a lot of guys did yeah a lot of guys did a lot did i mean a lot of uh connor you uh or one of you guys was just talking about how you'd kill yourself yeah um, that's me i constantly at least once an episode <laughs> well so that there's a, a pretty famous story of a group of guys in a shell hole um and they can't get to their buddy in another shell hole who's grievously injured i think his his uh, intestines were uh, shot and and hanging out and he, he was screaming for hours and then started apologizing and they said that the that's what broke them that that was the most horrific thing yeah of the he was entire like saying, experience was this guy apologizing for screaming out because like someone tried to go rescue him and they got killed and he's just like trying to not scream out in pain because he knows that other guys might try and come rescue him. Guys kind of and I think he killed himself. I think when yeah. they go the next day, they find this body and he had either shot himself or, or, or smothered himself, I think. Something like that, yeah. Um, and and if, you know, if you smother yourself, you mean it. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. that takes go. a few minutes. Like that's... Well, I, I really appreciate you bringing like the gritty details into it and like um i feel like when you see pictures of these battlefields which don't give you those details don't give you the gore because of like the exposure or whatever i mean there are some but when you just look at like the wide angles of the battlefields they look like another planet oh they don't yeah. even look like they're on earth <laughs> like i mean it's, it's a moonscape it's a, it's a total yeah. lunar uh lunar scape and it it it, it, it I think, did you guys watch They Shall Not Grow Old? Yes. Oh, so yeah, good. Only no, time so, I ever went to the movie theater by myself. <laughs> to no, see, I, to see that. It's a great, great thing to have seen on a, on a big screen. And it, it's something funny about just adding color yeah. to the images. It makes it so much more real. So much more human. Um, and you're right, Travis. It's, 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 it's almost like it's a it's kind of this um vision of what we could do to each other and what we the world we could be living in if we yeah. didn't at some point pull ourselves back and and the fact that we did it in such a short period of time is fucking crazy mm-hmm. yeah you know right. in 4 years to make it so that the one of the most uh one of the, the wealthiest most heavily uh human interfered with landscapes on the planet like this this whole area of of france and and belgium was like deeply farmed it's been settled and and kind of uh 
built up and made into just average European landscape for a thousand years, and we fucking ruined it in you know four years. Honey, yeah. let's, go on, let's go on a wine tour. Let's go to the wine tour. Oh yeah, <laughs> wine brown and red and fatty. <laughs> uh, it smells. It smells like cat urine. Oh, yeah. oh honey, get, it's supposed to. It's supposed. Can we get to. back on the bus. <laughs> so, uh, I don't know if you're listening to this episode right now, and your little Apple earbuds, and you're standing in a deli, and it smells a little weird. Shut savor up. it. Savor it. Yeah, it could be worse. Yeah, be worse. Why don't you use that porta potty that's been out in the sun? Come yeah. on, man. Yeah, it's not. Up. It's not that bad in the grand scheme of things. I used a porta potty in Savannah, Georgia, not oh. too long ago. <laughs> Guess what? That's cooking up some nice. Flavor. I feel like. This, I feel like if I was in that situation, by golly, it would smell much worse. Yeah. Yeah. So we haven't well, even gotten to the battle yet. So let's yeah, yeah. let's plow through this Jesus destroyed landscape. Yeah. Um, so as we were saying, the the German lines are different now. It's these defense in depth is what it's called. So the front soldier might be seven miles away from like the actual final line of defense. Um, so even if the BEF is able to achieve their day one objectives, it's going to put them far beyond the range of their own artillery support. And also because now their objectives are further and further, the first wave soldiers are carrying more shit on their back. So we're talking about how hard it would be to go up and down that 80 foot crater. Right. Now you're carrying four days worth of ammo and rations. And in the mud. In the mud. Not even on the sand. Yeah. Don't mud. go to Red Lobster before a big hike. It's yes. Insane. So despite all of this horrificness that is plainly visible to everybody on the ground, the order to go over the top is still sent out on Tuesday, July 31st. Um, some of these day one objectives are achieved. They do capture some German front lines and even some second uh, defensive lines. Um, in places, they penetrate a little under two miles. However, as always, most of these day one objectives are a little bit out of reach, but you could call day one a moderate success. And compared to the Somme, that's a massive, massive improvement. Um, you hear that Napoleon were doing? Yeah. <laughs> oh. <laughs> it was another 27,000 British casualties, however. That's what. Here's the problem. Uh, late in the afternoon of day one, it started to rain. We'd been talking about the mud. It's muddy. It's, you know, it's it's Flanders. This is, a you know, kind of like that classic Northern Europe gray overcast sky stereotype. So it's always a little wet, but it starts raining on day one. It becomes it a keeps Guy Ritchie film. Yes. Uh, normally, the area around Ypres would experience 70 millimeters of rain for the month of August. That's the average. In 1917, it got nearly double with 127 millimeters of rain. And August is still technically part of the dry season. So the wow. rain is dumping and it's still worses to come. It's still today one of the wettest Augusts in history for Belgium. And it's just going to make all of this disaster we talked about more and more possible. Uh, yeah, here's what Brigadier General Baker Carr described it. And this is a long quote, quote, the whole surface of the ground consisted of nothing but a series of overlapping shell craters half full of yellow, slimy water. Through falling into these ponds, hundreds upon hundreds of unwounded men, while advancing to the attack, still lost their lives by drowning. 
Under the most favorable conditions, an attack against such a position as confronted us would have been a task of great difficulty and risk. As things were, it was nothing but rank folly. Dude, it's like, don't fall down, you're gonna die. Yeah, so yeah. A, a big the part floor, of this is the there are all these... lava. The, yeah, the floor light. is lava to the extreme. <laughs> yeah. they, a lot of this is duck boards, so if you just look up Battles of Passchendaele, you're always gonna see these wooden duck boards with soldiers walking along them. And there are reports where they'd be advancing to the front line to go fight, and a soldier would fall off the duckboard and get stuck in the mud. And the mud at this point is just like like multiple feet deep. So they're not just like it's literal quicksand that they're falling into. So there's like this one report of a guy falls into the mud. They can't get him out. They can't get him out. Finally, the captain's like, you just have to go like advance, advance. They keep going and they're relieved two days later and they're coming back along the same duckboards and they see that same guy and all that's above the mud is his head and he's in, he's driven insane like he's just uh, because he's still alive trapped in the mud wow for days on end wow yeah and the dark the dark part of that is that his buddies then have to decide who's going to put a bullet in his head yeah so beyond just that that trauma of that individual going insane because he was swallowed by the very earth itself now his friends who just were at the front have to figure out which one of them is going to live with the memory of putting a bullet through their friend's head to stop him from raving insanely uh and dying of exposure yeah it's a you know it's a again it's like a, a minor uh horror in itself but I, I can't it's hard to wrap your head around some yeah. of the the situations that the individuals were placed in i don't well, I think, think i would I call that, that a minor horror i think that is like the definition <laughs> yeah. of horror yeah that's I like agree, most... I mean, minor in terms of in the terms of the war of yes war. But we're, yeah. we're all like individuals so we're putting yes. ourselves there it's just like yes. how would you rather die you want to be mustard guest or you <laughs> want to just fucking go insane in the fucking yeah. mud like, I mean, I think I think anyone that are, that seriously loves history, like those are the accounts that really add color to a time period. Even if you go back to like, I don't know, Rome or something. I'd love to hear about the guy who makes bread and makes uh, Roman dildos for a living. <laughs> yeah. No, but you know what I mean? Those minor details of oh, yeah, individual yeah. experience. I, you know, I'm joking. Ple but like, no, it fleshes that... out the humanity of it. Yeah. And if you if you have the kind of emotional uh, intelligence or the, the empathy, innate empathy to kind of like put yourself in that space, it it brings the history to life. Yeah. Um, it's just, I don't know if I want to fucking go there. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah. Uh, it, it's just, and, and, and the thing about the mud that you see over and over in the writings is uh, it's got a different it's not the fucking mud that you and i might slip and fall and drop our coffee in like going through a parking lot of a like a construction site it has this like sponge quality to it it's like a it soup really, it's like a thick stew almost yeah it's, it's a gloopy gloppy again it's not just dirt it's heavily heavily farmed dirt for you know almost a millennia this is is crop producing dirt that also has been flooded because you know the unique geography of of belgium is it's basically below sea level which makes it great for farming in a very very uh highly productive ag agricultural area but it also makes it 
easy to flood and the Germans flooded it and the Belgians flooded it early in the war. And then the Germans reflooded it to give this kind of extra added plus all the rain and then all the corpses. Never forget. This is just a fucking graveyard. It is where they're fighting a battle on poltergeist land like they didn't they didn't move the the, the skeletons yeah. they didn't this, move the bones this is true and, for like all of world war one but um or all of western front world war one by like 1915 even some landmarks for like the soldier on a front line would be like all right so the wire gap is like over by that dead horse and then there's like three dead bodies in a row and that's another path through the wire because that's those were the landmarks that was like how you oriented yourself oh yeah so like you're coming back from a trench raid it's like oh well there's the dead french soldier now we know we're close back to our lines like it's crazy yeah and there was living like signs on the corpses yeah and sometimes they'd have like you know a guy's hand out you know his decaying hand and you you high five it as you get back into your trench yep or you you shake the corpse's hand and you know you're home safe and so it's a good sign it's this kind of like this is the blackest darkest of black humor um but it's the, the small bits of humor and humanity that allow people to live in a a hole full of human decaying flesh and come yeah. out of it you know maybe not healthy but at least capable of of still being it's it's uh it's gallows humor on crack like yes. it's <laughs> like yeah. every hour is like you're gonna die that's the only message that you're receiving from your environment is like this is set up yeah yeah and if it's i like, was that I- fucking guy in the mud I'd probably keep my cool the whole time. Be sane as fuck. <laughs> and as soon as those guy came back, I'd say, could you kill me, please? Could, could you, you just do fucking it? do it? Yeah. It's like playing Don't Wake Daddy, but Daddy is a fucking handgun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you're always going to wake. Yep. <laughs> uh, so it's kind of hard to make out strategy at this point. Um August continues. Haig is always believing. No, the 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 breakthrough is right around the corner. We can we can liber- liberate the Belgian ports, stop the U-boat menace, just keep pouring in men and material, and eventually we'll have that final breakthrough. Um, August is ending. The actual rain season has begun. We're getting more and more rain every day. It's just getting worse for the frontline soldier. Uh, one historian wrote during the battle of um, when the actual battle for Passchendaele began. So like all this is just third Ypres, but Passchendaele is what it's known as. Um, quote, the frontline soldier had lost all sense of any wider strategy if he had ever possessed it. He was only concerned to survive and get to the next shell hole. So the, the British, the soldier on the ground has no fucking clue what's going on. Yeah. He just knows I want to not die. Well, if Haig doesn't know anything until 48 hours later, yeah. the fuck do you yeah. think these guys know? Yeah. He's There's already a... on track the third. Yeah, he's on track the third. There's a story that's maybe apocryphal, maybe accurate. It's one of those like legends that's kind of sprung up, but it's worth saying. One general from Haig's HQ is apparently riding along with a soldier going from headquarters up to the front line. And as he's getting closer and closer he's kind of seeing all the stuff that we've been talking about that he'd only been hearing about and at one point he just breaks down crying and asks someone did we really send men to fight in this and the guy who's driving along is like it's actually worse further up so it's actually worse the way like this is that kind of shows how um 
removed the headquarters is from the frontline experience. Yeah. I mean, you have to admit. So, yeah. So I actually, I, I do think, so that's famously, like, I think, I, I, this is a classic popular history versus academic history. Yeah. Because, like, academia would tell you that that is an apocryphal story, that that didn't occur, and that it's obvious that the generals would know what the grounds are like that they are out there close enough where it would be insane to think that they don't know what eight miles forward is like they're getting constant reports they're talking to firsthand you know they're they're dealing with people who are on the ground yeah my point or where i stand on that kind of a story is who the fuck cares this is one of those things where academia like relax this is a great story to tell a broader truth like even if it's not real or it didn't happen exactly that way it it drives home exactly what you were just saying mm-hmm. there was a detachment whether it was right. truly like that stark where they didn't know what it was like at the front or if it was just something where the the officer corps was detached emotionally from the experience of the men or they the men felt like they were detached yeah on that deeper level it doesn't really matter it's it's telling a broader truth yeah it doesn't matter if this happened it matters that the british soldier on the front line thinks that it happened that's almost more important i think when we covered sam hughes who was the uh war you know deputy of war or whatever for canada I mean, I think that kind of summed up like how the upper brass kind of. I mean, he was giving the Ross rifle, which uh, all the Canadians would just throw away, and it didn't work, and they'd grab an Enfield. And then he shows up to the front line, and he's like, almost like you know, his officers were treating him like putting their coats down for him to walk around, you know. And this guy like pranced around the battlefield, probably way far away, and he was like, "Oh, it's not too bad," yeah. you know. Eh, that's kind of the same story that you just brought up but like this was like the guy leading the canadian forces just you know getting his own depiction of what he thought the war was like i don't think that he spent time looking at the human scum in all of the uh you know well i think that's why churchill is so beloved by people that love churchill is that like whether you love him or hate him and i fucking love the guy but like he didn't he wasn't that he wasn't detached he he went to the front yeah, now he, he brought his own butler and his own <laughs> clawfoot bathtub and his own valet and 16 cases of champagne um but he also like he lived in the mud and had to deal with it just like any other soldier. Yeah, he was in the charge at Omdurman. Like he actually, yeah, I mean, he knows actually, what it's like. <laughs> he 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 killed men, and you know, unfortunately, he liked it. Yes, <laughs> he thought it was the height of it's like this is great. Of, uh, a fine Saturday afternoon was to kill a few, you know, Sudanese uh, uh, kafirs. Yeah, <laughs> he, he was stuck a, uh... in his. He was actually stuck in the claw of a bathtub well he was firing <laughs> from the bathtub. yeah yeah had to right. bring in a thing of butter to get him out we're yeah. not sure if it's his fatness or the fact that he's wearing so much patagonia <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit chilly boys yeah. <laughs> i just bought those don't get the money that's pretty good churchill oh thank you um so Haig, as this battle is dragging out remember he was given the order that to not let it drag out 
Well, it's dragging out. Um, he still believes German morale is collapsing. He's like, well, if the British are pissed that they're fighting in the mud, imagine how angry the Germans must be to be fighting in the mud. Which, like, sure, okay. Smash cut to Germans <laughs> just, like, singing a Broadway piece about how much they love mud. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the mud's a mud. We love the mud. Yeah, this is the land of shiza porn. It's I mean, mud. Yeah. It's mud. mud. Mud is the dildo of shiza porn. <laughs> oh, that's awful. That's a horrid, horrid <laughs> thing to say. Yeah. That's the worst thing I've heard on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, another reason that Haig was so relentless in continuing to push for the advance is that he's starting to feel the political pressure uh, of needing a victory to justify his role. Um, he'd staked his big part of his reputation on Passchendaele. He knows Lloyd George is looking for any uh, any chance to replace him. So he's basically like, no, I, we need, I need this victory now. It's not just like Britain needs the victory. I need the victory to oh, maintain yeah. my position. Yeah, that's always a winning That's always strategy. a really good thing, yeah. yeah. Um, dude, God reserved like a few seats for me, and I get fuck up. I'm not going to be able to sit there, dude. I'll be able to stretch put, my legs. You put that seat on StubHub. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's now also using um, the Canadian and Anzac troops basically as the spear point for every single attack. Not only because the Canadians and the Anzac are the best troops, um, but because it was easy, better politically for Haig if less British people were dying. So it's easier to use the Canadians and the Anzacs as the tip of the spear. That way, there's less British casualty reports in the newspapers. Now that's kind of that's kind of like when we talked about Gallipoli with the uh, Australians, right? Like, yeah, yeah, send them over there. Yeah, send the send the <laughs> old battleships and the yeah. Aussies. They'll they'll yeah. handle it. They won't know the difference. Yeah. <laughs> they kind of sound like us, just dirtier. <laughs> so the seizing of Passchendaele Ridge had been initially an objective in the service of the grand strategy of liberating the ports and achieving the breakthrough. By um, September and October, the seizing of Passchendaele Ridge is the sole objective of the Passchendaele campaign. That kind of shows you just how poorly it's all going. Uh, this would continue um, throughout this uh, all the autumn. Um, the British could claim some limited tactical successes. They could also point out that they inflicted massive casualties on the Germans, which they did. And that's, that is partly in service of winning the war because the Germans just have less troops to replace their casualties. But if you set out for a strategic victory and then you're claiming, well, we won the attritional battle, Again, who cares? You didn't set out for an attritional battle. You set out to achieve all these objectives, and you failed. But moving goalposts. Uh, there we go. The moving the goalposts yeah. again. Yeah. yeah. Um, for the British, when the battle just kind of peters out eventually, they just stop launching these massive offensives. The winter is kind of starting to set in. By the end of the battle, they'd suffered roughly 300,000 casualties, 70,000 dead. Uh, the Germans probably suffered about 400,000 casualties. Tom, you're, you're the math guy. How many 9-11s is that? <sighs> Dude, that's, that's a lot of 9 -11s. You actually caught me off guard. But I'm going to say uh, not nearly as tragic as the actual 9-11. Okay. <laughs> I'm keeping that pregnant pause. Yeah, <laughs> gonna leave it in there. Dude, yeah. British horses can't melt steel. <laughs> uh, 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, not, <laughs> I'm not. I'm not going to revisit that equation you just gave me, Travis. But I will say, uh, is that wrong? That's factual. They can't. Well, I mean, the way New Yorkers like to talk about nine eleven. Oh, that's. I mean, it, how it many are you burning? It's a decent equation. <laughs> yeah. But uh, no. So if Hague did nine eleven, he'd throw a bunch of horses at the world. Hague would never do nine eleven. Oh yeah. He's too true. Christian. Too Christian. <laughs> Napoleon's ghost used to live on Tower Two. So. <laughs> <laughs> My ghost home. <laughs> Uh, so as I mentioned, part of the reason that he was using all these Canadian Anzac troops is the British are also just straight up running out of soldiers. Um, people that would have been laughed out of recruiting stations a couple of years earlier are now being desperately called up to serve in the army. Um, one historian wrote about this phenomenon, quote, their physical deficiencies were evidence of Britain's desperation for soldiers and Haig's profligacy with men. On the Somme, he had sent the flower of British youth to death or mutilation. At Passchendaele, he had tipped those survivors into the slough of despond. Those are like a bunch of tiny Tims fighting. Yeah. There's like five, two guys that weigh 101 pounds that are like, were told you can't sign up for the war in 1915. Right. Now they're frontline troops. Oh, look at this front line. It looks like a bunch of Paul McCartney's. Yeah. They're actually, there are some of these like, they called them midget divisions because they actually called up some like in groups like the pals battalions excuse right. me that yeah. is that that is little person division <laughs> i'm using their vernacular oh wow. wait, wait, I, wait, I, I, wait. Be I believe this the the arm the arm term would be uh fabric saving divisions yeah. <laughs> wow wait That's so good. are you telling me this was like carney so these are the first paratroopers they put them in the cannons, <laughs> shoot them over them enemy out. lines. You know, if they <laughs> had done that, they might have won the war in 1915. Just fire your troops behind the enemy lines. A little they too late for that. To the carnies. Yeah. Should have listened to the carnies. Oh, man. That's pretty funny, though. Yeah. <laughs> and just be like, all right, guys, it's, it's bad news bears. That's it's that season. <laughs> it's better than the Germans sending literal children to war in World War II, but it's close. <laughs> were those little? No, they were just in camp. <laughs> They're just at summer camp. Yeah, hell are you? They were just. They didn't fight. Though. I mean, yeah, they they got ready. By the end of the war, they were fighting. They were. Yeah, yeah they yeah. grew to be the soul, the super soul. They they were deadly. They were the most fervent of some of his troops were like eight-year-old boys with Panzerfausts. Yeah, yeah, I just of don't course. know why Hitler gave them super soakers. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you take a kid and you train him for anything. You know, look yeah. at look at World Cup. What do you think half of these, like... They've been doing uh, since they like, like, Gymnasts, yeah. you know? Tiger yeah. Woods. Exactly. Yeah. It's, you want a sick soldier, you get them when they're 12. <laughs> And then you don't you don't send them into battle till they're about 17, 18. Then they're but, ready. Man, they are they're ready. ready. They're ready to rip a fucking throat out. Call them up to the first team. Yeah. yeah. Hey, uh, just one more. I got to pee again real quick. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> are we, how, how are we doing? How are we doing uh, with ending on Passion Yeah, we can end on Passion There's only a little bit more I've got. Okay, cool. I'll be right back. <laughs> All right. Welcome to the piss breaks. Holy. They're always wonderful. All right. I'll take one, too. All right. So, Connor, what do you do for work? I'm a librarian. Oh, cool. Yeah, I'm a public librarian. That's awesome. Where at? Uh, just here on Long Island. Um, I work at, um, I don't know if you know Long Island at all, Northport Library. Yeah. 
Okay. Where yeah. where on like is that close to the city, middle of the island, or out towards the tip? Basically, Tom and I are both like smack in the middle of the island. So we're like at the edge of the county border. Um, so we're like an hour from the city and then an hour from the east end. So. And how did you get involved in the uh, in the show? Tom is my brother-in-law. Oh, cool. Yeah, I married oh, his sister. Cool. <laughs> well, that's that's one way of, that's one of way getting to get involved. In. Yeah. yeah. So I what? um I studied history in undergrad. So when Tom first started the show, we were talking about it, and he was like, "Oh, you should come on." I was like, "Yeah, maybe, maybe." And then when he kicked Cody off, he's like, "Connor, do you want to come on and like write a script?" So I did one, and just really like doing it. So I've just been yeah, it's, I think it's been like eighteen you, months now that I've been on, or, some, or a little well, more than a year. Yeah, you've definitely uh, your your timeline is is awesome that, that script is huge man that's impressive yeah so this is um i wrote out a bunch more just because i didn't know how quick we'd be going through stuff um but yeah we'll wrap it up with passionnel because i wrote like i have cambrai here the kaiser schlocked and then 100 days also damn that's yeah hey man that's if, you another wanted to come, if you wanted to come much. back on for another uh battlefield show I would, we'd absolutely have you on again yeah absolutely. anytime anytime i apologize i know i can take no, uh, I love it. No, long, I'm, I'm enjoying it. Yeah. way of talking about simple shit. So <laughs> no, I'm, you can always tell me to like cut. You know, no. do a, a, a seal clap in the background. <laughs> no, honestly, like, uh, and I was just telling Connor about this, and like every everyone that I tell, and I think I said this last time you were on, but everyone that I tell about your podcast, I'm like, the way you described Dresden in your one episode with Dresden, and how like. And what you just did with, you know, World War One and describing the battlefield and how visceral it is. It's like, I don't know, you encapsulated your, your almost your whole show without, <laughs> you know, you bring in these first person primary accounts and it's amazing. Yeah. Well, it's fun. It's, it's fascinating stuff. So Connor, fire away. What, where are we at? Have the Canadians taken passion down? Well, do you want to cover that? Because I was I was kind of just going to wrap up with like Haig's post-war justifications because we weren't getting like too tactical but oh yeah no no no. i just uh that's that's what happens the canadians yeah. uh prove themselves again to be weirdly weirdly good at fighting war yeah um so this is i think the point blood. where yeah, i think this is the point where the german army realizes that like if the canadian division is next to an anzac division expect an offensive within the next like 48 yeah. hours yeah it became like uh policy essentially that yeah. they would they would keep track of those two and then once the uh the marine corps got involved the anzac the marines and the um canadians they would basically just track them anywhere they went yeah because that's where the attack's gonna come so, so actually so you bring that up the um the canadian commander when they take passchendaele is a guy named i forget his first name curry is his last name um and Haig gives this order to curry to seize the town of pa the village of passchendaele and curry is like i don't think we should do this he says i'm estimating sixteen thousand casualties just to take this little village it's not even the ridge line and Haig is like no we need to take it curry carries out the orders like a dutiful soldier seizes the village Sixteen thousand casualties exactly basically wow yeah, yeah. he knew exactly Damn. how many men were going to die 
it happened just like he said it would. But the village is it. so cute. It's beautiful. <laughs> it's like, it takes me back in time. There's a pub there that sells my whiskey. <laughs> well, the, the thing is, when you put a Canadian in a, in a military uniform, you've seen the covers of an Animorphs uh, book, right? That <laughs> yeah. happens when they turn into the tree ends. Yeah. <laughs> They're all morphing into Wolverines. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so this this whole operation come to and kind of just peters out eventually um the inertia is no longer there none of the big objectives are achieved sure there's stuff they can point to they took passchendaele they took messina ridge they didn't take any channel ports they didn't stop any u-boat attacks another reason haig said he was launching this was because of the french mutinies this would relieve pressure on their sectors however by the time the battle is even underway Patan has gotten everything under control there's no need for this and it doesn't actually happen anyway there are no divisions that get shifted north all that's happening is more german divisions from the east are pouring in mm. so that's not even true um where was i sorry it's all right uh we'll, we'll plug our sponsor right now uh while you're <laughs> looking for your spot who's our current sponsor our sponsor today is budweiser <laughs> uh at least it's my sponsor what a now delicious with forty-five percent more human fat. Now with a horse on the can. <laughs> Continue, Con. Um, so Haig would always maintain that this whole battle is vital to sapping German morale, even though he had always claimed the morale was already low. And there are some uh, German generals even that will agree with him, but most people will point out that Passchendaele, like you had pointed out, Colin, is just the ultimate example of man's inhumanity to man and the wastage of human life that happened in all throughout world war one that passchendaele just typifies all of that brutality and we'll probably leave it there colin do you have anything to add to passchendaele before we wrap it up yeah i think i think um like i was saying you've you kind of covered it all i think the legacy of passchendaele is um is so varied you know there's so many different legacies that it has the artistic one if you look at some of the artwork that comes from passchendaele it's absolutely haunting it's um uh otherworldly and and horrifying and yet really intensely um intensely human uh the the poetry and literature that comes out of it like you'd said earlier, Siegfried Sassoon is there, but there's also, I believe, Tolkien is at Passchendaele, mm -hmm. um, a bunch of uh, of different English authors, but also German and French, or uh, German and, and Canadian poets and uh, and and authors go through the lines here, um, and then you have a lot of the politicians in the future, so people that are going to be politicians during the 1930s in charge of the the uh the british in the 1930s lose sons or brothers or themselves were in passchendaele and this is what they're afraid of happening when hitler is is going to munich they're afraid of passchendaele this is the one thing that they are really seeing in their head when they think of oh we are going to do this again the one the other thing that i think we kind of touched on at the beginning of this is is the Hague legacy you know his legacy is is the psalm it's passchendaele 
it is uh, uh, the 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 classic lions led by donkeys myth. Um, were these guys idiots? Were they detached to the point of not knowing how how bad it was for the men on the ground? Were they so incompetent that they couldn't um, figure out a way to win this war? Uh, or were they just maybe faced with something that nobody ever had been faced with? Yeah. And trying to figure out on the fly how to change 2,500 years of Western warfare and at the same time incorporate modern technology and equipment and tactics as they were developing in real time. I'm, I, I, at first, and I think anybody that starts their investigation in World War I, um, usually in the U.S., we start with uh, John Keegan, and you read his First World War, and then you start to branch out into a couple of other guys. And it's hard not to see them as butchers, you know, right. the, these 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 uh, generals as, as just incompetent butchers, and Haig kind of exemplifies that. But as you get a little bit more and you start to see how, like, we can't fucking figure out anything, you know, it, it, I, I keep coming back to this idea of, like, technology is so scary. It's such a it's such a bizarrely um, uh, we're just incapable of handling like fire has been we've had fire under control for 30,000 years or whatever and we still learn how you know we still figure out a way to burn down our houses mm -hmm. uh, we still like you know can catch fire at times um, how is it possible that that something we've had for as long as as fire we still can't control and then we expect people to figure out on the fly how best to use tanks yeah yeah uh, when when the, the 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 car has been around for 15 years and all of a sudden we're expected to or this you know this general who grew up on horseback is supposed to be able to like instantly figure out that oh tanks are are really not a shield for your infantry they should just be the sword itself they should replace all the other stuff yeah. that you know yeah um so you're yeah, kinda, I don't know. What are, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I'm I'm just saying. So you're kind of saying that like Mark Zuckerberg's legacy right now. We all think he's an alien man and he's an idiot, but in the future they'd be like, "Wow, dude was an alien, but we're all idiots." He was dealing <laughs> with a technology that no one understood. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, that's his legacy right now. It's yeah. like nobody saw social media for what it was going to be until Mark Zuckerberg said, "Oh, this is how you do it." He's kind of it's moved past him though, right? It's yeah. it, it, it's, it's moving like, so quickly that it's even gone past the guy who was like on the cutting edge right. fifteen years ago. Yeah, and I mean, I was I was making a joke, but that was also like it's how legit. that's how that's how war moved. War moved well, past Hague. I think you, know? you brought up a great point where like like you yourself, Colin. I went through the whole he when you're first exposed to World War One, they're they're butchers, they're lions, uh, donkeys leading lions. Um, to me, what really like hammered home that he's just caught in this timeline, just technological estuary of like all these like old world and new world things mixing. Twenty years later, the Dwight Eisenhower can get on a phone and ask a captain ten like ten minutes away from the front line what's happening. A hundred years before Haig, 
Wellington can ride his horse across the entire length of the battlefield of Waterloo and process everything he's seeing. It's only in this very small period where the general of the army can't know what's happening on the front right, line. Right, yeah, because of all these technologies, yeah. all these... It's, cr it's like that you have to give them so much more forgiveness for that than you initially think when you first encounter it. I honestly learned... In the last episode we oh, did the radio the, the radio yeah. thing yeah. i thought that the radio had been developed like pre this point mm -hmm. and then you reminded me that all the world war ii people have these backpack radio the back, and i'm like yeah. oh yeah that makes sense and it's like well immediately my whole pers perspective on that has shifted yeah. and it's like hmm. it's like no no one can control this stuff yeah do you do you and think that do you think that the doughboys had like a term for people of Haig's age that was like, okay, boomer. It was like, okay, Vicky. <laughs> probably, they probably did call them Victorians. Like, yeah. Yeah. I'm sure there's some lost uh, pejorative that was slung about in the trenches, but I, I don't, I don't know if, I think your, your point about a historical estuary is really a, a good one because it's, I don't even, I don't know if anybody fucking had time to process. Like, the guys didn't, in the trenches, they they didn't know either. Like, yeah. Nobody knew what the fuck to do. There was no, like, answer on the horizon that was just being ignored. It was just, this is how war's always been fought, so how come it's not working? Mm -hmm. Like, yeah. why isn't it working? It's going to work eventually, right? It always has before. At some point, it has to work. The idea of the technology kind of being in this weird uh, twilight zone of, of so advanced and yet not advanced enough, that's the whole reason we had the trenches in the beginning of the mm -hmm. war in the first place. Like, you had the ability to uh, to to move so far, but, but not as quickly. You had a, an ability to move as quickly as the human can travel while under the march, but it was lacking the the truck to get yeah. it that extra push that you see in World War II. So, like, the German advance eventually comes to this collapse and stops. When the French counterattack, they have the same problem. They can, they can only go as far as fast as a marching man, and then they have to stop as well, and then you have the trench line. If either one of those guys have trucks or tanks, there is no trench warfare. Yeah, in World it never War. happens. Trucks or tanks, but it's really the segue. <laughs> or or segways or you know yeah. uh, a fiat or two would have yeah. been nice hell even heelys would have been nice yeah <laughs> well, <not> imagine, <laughs> imagine world a couple war of one. city bikes in there and you'd yeah. be great imagine world war one but everyone is on segways i want to see like the edit of 1917 just everyone's all, on segways. all every single person on a segway. <laughs> there's part of me that wants to take like what we just talked about um conceptually and like drive that into any like that idea into any kid I meet. Like oh, you yeah. know adults, they're fucking retarded. Yeah. <laughs> like they won't admit it. They never will. They all have talked to God. And Napoleon. <laughs> and you're gonna be one of them. Yeah. You're gonna be yeah. just like one of these. You're people. never gonna be you're we're all as dumb as you, kid. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> if you think an adult knows what the fuck they're talking about, think about it. Yeah. Think about it. Cause that, Go study not, World War One. They might not. They might yeah. <laughs> They might just say with utmost confidence that they've got your best interest in mind. Yep. But it turns out they're fucking retarded. Right. That's like, you know, I mean, technology's evolved and uh, people, you know, the youth is like, 
those pigeons are actually drones that can bomb us. And the adults <laughs> are like, nah, dude, that's a pigeon. It's yeah. an animal. It's uh, technology is essentially the Matthew McConaughey of of uh you know of the world where technology is like, you know what I like about humans? I keep evolving and they just stay the same age. <laughs> you know, they just they don't move with me at all. Yep. No, I mean, well, think about how many technologies are designed to, to just like counteract the technology. Like, yeah, that, well, that has been I mean, what presented. we're seeing in Ukraine right now is like, is where it's a it's a total cat and mouse of well, they're developing anti drone technology, and now you've got to create anti drone anti-drone measures for the anti-drone technology yeah. oh, right and what it's, what's actually happening is that they're finding out that just a regular sniper is just as effective <laughs> as a lot of like other methods yep well also like they're all using similar technology everyone's talking yeah. about like the word technology like we have all these brainiacs it's just like no they're still using the same technology that's why they're why they're able to stay on top of it all the time it's yeah. like they're just using a different Bluetooth. How's that fucking well, sound? Well, that that's the same thing in World War One when we when Connor when you covered Krupp. They're all using the same cannon. They're all using Krupp yeah. shells. These are all <laughs> yeah. they're all the shells, shells are made by yeah. one guy who <laughs> loves horseshit. Like, yeah, wow. <laughs> uh, so well, to put a button on Hag, I do think there there has to be something said about he he was deeply religious and then he spends the rest of his life. Um raising money now i don't know if that means anything but there are some veterans who it probably meant a lot to them yeah i think he was made an earl in in 1919 or 1920 and then he travels the world collecting money for for various veteran causes it does seem that the toll and this is another thing like these these generals they're also human beings like this broke wait 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 Douglas MacArthur went on to gas World War One veterans, so I don't know if they're all human beings. He wasn't a general in World War One, though. He was only a captain. MacArthur, MacArthur is a different. He's a horse of a different color. Yeah. Maybe when you cover him, I will. I will join for that because MacArthur is oh, my personal. Like, I want. I want to favorite. I want to redo him because yeah, I think he was. Oh, our, you like, did do him. He was our like fifth episode. So I mean, come on. Yeah. 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 Yeah, if I did MacArthur, it'd be 45 parts, and it would just be me screaming from 30 of them. <laughs> um, but I do think it's worth noting that, like, Ludendorff is seen as the most monstrous general to come out of World War One, uh, and it broke him mentally. He was a, a hollowed shell of a man for a period of time. Haig had to have a part of him that was deeply affected by the fact that his word had sent half a million men to die and be grievously injured. I don't think it's, um, it, it's part of the equation there that, that I don't think these guys were butchers who were just like blindly sending, you know, bashing their head or the the men under them bashing their heads up against the wall with no real hope of victory. Yeah. I do think he believed that they were on the brink or the cusp of victory every time he gave the order to attack. He was just fucking wrong Yep. every single time. And I don't think you can really, I don't think you can, upbraid a historical figure for being wrong 
Yeah. I can I think you can you can take them up to account for being evil or for being horrible or horrific, but if someone's just wrong, I mean, I don't and, know, we're all wrong. It's very human. And he's eventually right. Wrong, that's so. the thing. He's also and then, eventually and then, right. And that's you're yeah. right. He, he was eventually right. So I keep um, screaming about the ghost hunters and this fact. You can be wrong, but then you can eventually be right. Yeah. <laughs> we, yeah I didn't waste 30 seasons of my time on Ghost Hunters. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, it's, it, it's a... Um, yeah, we're going to talk a lot about his legacy in the coming episodes right. and how it waxes and wanes in the post after his death. So Yeah. Cool. Yeah. I'm excited to hear that. That's I think that's interesting stuff. So gentlemen, um I, I'm I'm starting to uh fade here. I've got yeah, no, I gotta absolutely. hit the hay. Well, it's Cullen, that time anyway. Yeah. Colin, thank you so much for your input tonight. Seriously, um, thank you. Really kind of brings what we offer to the next level. So yeah. Man, you're welcome anytime. No, this is this a, a ton of fun. I, I love the show. Um I'm excited to hear how you guys wrap up Hag and what do you guys have coming down the pipeline? Who, who are you covering or what events are you covering in the future? Um, or is that inside baseball that we I can't share? No, I, I, already let, uh, yeah, I already talked about we're doing um, we're doing well, we got Wagner our end soon. of year wrap up. We're doing the end of that's, year wrap that's up. A classic. And then we have Wagner coming. Yeah. Ooh, um, Wagner. The Damarang. And yeah, so we're gonna talk about all the weird, fancy things he's into. And down <laughs> I the road, love that. We got a very serious topic: evil Knievel. <laughs> oh, dude, I can't wait. Yeah, That's, the three um... pillars of the last 150 years: Douglas Haig, <laughs> Wagner, and Evil Knievel. <laughs> <laughs> no, Pretty but truly, uh... everyone, please check out Cauldron Podcast. Can yes, you plug it's your, awesome. Your your show, it's really great. And uh, yeah. uh, thank you, gentlemen. Thank you. It's Cauldron, a military history podcast. You can find it anywhere you download podcasts. We're on Twitter and Instagram um, at Cauldron Podcast or at uh, Military History Pod. And uh, we've got the Battle of Konigratz or Sedova coming up, which ties directly into everything we've just been talking about um so if you guys are interested in the needle gun and the effect that a bolt action breech loading rifle can have on guys carrying around muskets especially austrians um <laughs> well come find cauldron of military history podcast that's what they said about me when I was on the dating scene. <laughs> Check out that needle. Oh, here comes <laughs> needle gun. Yeah. All right. And, uh, yeah, if you like this episode, we have lots of them. That's <laughs> right. Know, I don't know how you would make it to this point. But either way, if you've been listening to the episodes and you're at this point, go to patreon.com slash Cast. Give us your money. It's the only thing I care about. I don't really care much for history. Turns out it's money that turns yeah. me on. Give right, Mike, boys? Give Mike money. Right. Yeah, it's really steal. for Mike, the guy who's that. Yeah. <laughs> go steal scrap metal and give us the funds that you get <laughs> yeah. from your scrap metal. Exactly. <laughs> we have the merch store, RussMortonCast.com. Pick that oh, out. Oh, cool. Yeah, oh, that's yeah. awesome. I don't mean to interrupt. Yeah, there's peepees and boobies on most of our merch. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> Shows our, our serious academic standards. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, that that's really it. That wraps the show every yep. time, right? That's Connor, right. thanks, man. Thank awesome. you, yeah. Colin. Thank you again. It was great having you. I look forward to having you again soon. All right, guys. Thank you so much. 
Don't live in World War One. Bye. <laughs>